Hey there, everyone. Tim K here to talk to you about a new production company called Team House Studios. Team House Studios is a film and TV production company committed to empowering military veterans both in front of and behind the camera. Co-founded by filmmaker Stephen Graham and former NFL and Green Beret veteran Nate Boyer as well. Through real hands-on training, they are aiming to create an equal opportunity environment for all genders, races, and backgrounds. Now, I'll tell you that I had the beautiful privilege of being on set for Team House's first full-length feature production, a psychological thriller called The Curse of Cinchony. I was behind-the-scenes set photographer, and it was just a beautifully made film. We were out there in western Massachusetts for the better part of a month, and I got to hang out with my bros Rudy Reyes, Jacob Schick, our next guest, Don McAllister, and last and certainly least, <laughs> Nate Boyer. While on set, I truly realized the need for veterans on these productions. All of those core values that were consistently taught in the military are absolute necessities on set. And that's exactly what Team House Studios is setting out to accomplish. Uh, check them out on Instagram at Team House Studios, and uh, you can also find the Curse of Cinchony on Instagram as well. Uh, Stephen Graham and Nate Boyer are on Instagram, Facebook, uh, and I, I will set up some links there in the introduction so that you can uh, access all of this information. But our next guest was on that set, and boy, we had an absolutely incredible time. Tough days, long nights. But we got it done, and I'm really proud of that. To Nate and Stephen, I'll say that you both should be extremely proud of yourselves. Uh, you, you did what very few can do, and you set out to film a feature-length film in about a month. You got it done, and now on to post-production. The creation of Max Man Cave, started by Command Sergeant Major Donald McAllister, who is the guest on this podcast, was built on the realization of the need for an outlet of a lifetime of experience through both Mac and the guests that will be coming on his show. Throughout a career of both being mentored and ultimately becoming a mentor for others, the continued purpose of providing leadership, guidance, and an outlet for both Mac and other veterans and military alike drives this experience. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to seeing what Mac uh, passes on through this uh, format. As I understand it, it'll be a podcast, and they're going to discuss all things uh, reintegration, military, uh, getting out, and the struggles of getting out. Obviously, Mac is a subject matter expert in these areas, uh, as he was in the military being a command sergeant major. So I'm looking forward to that a lot. It's going to be really cool. So check it out on all the appropriate channels, and I'll provide links to those uh, in the description. Max Van Cave, looking forward to it. A movie set is a frenetic scene, a certain inexplicable order in the chaos. It's hard to explain to one who hasn't been around that particular setting. And yet, maybe that's why it makes so much sense to bring combat veterans into the fray. Isn't being on set like being in combat in many ways? Think about it. Everyone has a role within the team or unit, and no matter what that role is, even the most, air quotes, minor of those positions can cause the whole mission, or in the case of our analogy, film, to implode. 
Of course, one means life and death, which is definitely a more serious matter, but the other results in terrible consequences as well. It's even possible that you lose the entire film, costing investors millions of dollars, and possibly destroying the careers of those working on set. All this being said, I'd be remiss if I failed to mention that I took the job as a set photographer on an upcoming psychological thriller called The Curse of Cinchony, because it brought me close to a veteran I'd been looking to cover for quite some time. Stay tuned on the film side. It's going to be a really incredibly well done piece by Stephen Graham and Nate Boyer over at Team House Studios, which I just spoke about. But uh, we're really looking forward to that. Yet when I arrived in western Massachusetts, I, I met another veteran who immediately kind of captured my imagination, and better yet, he quickly became a brother. Command Sergeant Major Donald McAllister served first in the invasion of Iraq in 2003, already a staff sergeant in the United States Army, then subsequently thereafter deploying to Afghanistan three times. He'd probably kill me if I didn't mention that he was a paratrooper with the 82nd, and I don't blame him. A lot of proud lineage there. A titanic career of 20-plus years with his second-to-last deployment being to the hellish landscape of the Argandab River Valley, an integral portion of Taliban-held territory regionally tied to their holy city of Kandahar. Violent, violent days. Don was immediately friendly and quickly fit in with the rest of the crew staying at our Airbnb. I remember when we first met, you know, it's kind of bad biker dude. I walk in, you know, he's got the mohawk, long hair on top in the back. He's got the earrings and the Viking braided beard. Looked like a guy I would meet after a bad night at a biker bar at 2 a.m. in the back alley and immediately regret meeting him. <laughs> I know Don's going to love that description. Spit and polish, Command Sergeant Major, no more. Now, the bad biker viking hybrid <laughs> that's a lesson on stereotypes right we talked about that last time on the podcast but every but every bit of the type of guy you would see and go oh don't mess with that dude he turns out to be the guy that'll give you the shirt off his back don should be very proud of that something stayed with me though on those long days working together on set i truly believe part of McAllister was still back in the argandab river valley 20-plus years, violent combat, brotherhood, blood, sweat, tears, and training all the time as a paratrooper. Then it's all gone. In this podcast, you will hear Don speak about the necessity of taking a tactical pause, where you slow down before a big decision just long enough to weigh out all the factors. This is a vital tenet of leadership, one which McAllister learned hard early on in basic training. But where was the tactical pause when Mac left the Army? Where were the programs enabling him to get used to civilian life, settle back in with his family, and prepare him for the rest of his life? There was no tactical pause. Thank you for your service, Don. Enjoy your life. So says the Army, and so it is. I know Don, if he was being completely honest, and Don's not one to complain, but he would tell you he still struggles with that. So here he is, with an education on reintegration after a career of combat. My brother, Donald McAllister. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay.
This is the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay, and I will be your host as always. Today, we have an awesome guest on the show. He's shaking his head. They all shake their head when I say awesome. Yeah. You can't get any of them to respond positively to that. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's the humility. Um, but uh, we have Command Sergeant Major Don McAllister on, recently retired, right? Yeah, uh, almost three years now. Three years, okay. So it's it's been a little bit, but yeah. probably doesn't feel like very long with uh, such a long career in the in the Army. No, nah, it feels like a short amount of time, yeah. And, and Don, what, what specifically did you do? Uh, what was your specific command, you know, where with uh, the 82nd? Well, my, my last job with the 82nd, I was honored enough to be the uh, command sergeant major for uh, 2nd Battalion, 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah, I guess you could say it. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was it was what was really such a cool thing for me and such an honor was the fact that I got selected to come back to that battalion to be the command sergeant major when I did all my first sergeant time in that battalion. And uh, wow. And I went on, you know, two combat deployments with that battalion as a first sergeant and then to come back as a command sergeant major was just like everything just coming full circle, you know. That's pretty special. Yeah. That's awesome. So, Don, you know, obviously with the project, we go into a lot of the past life. We talk a lot about, you know, what led your path into the Army and why you made the decisions you did, good and bad. <laughs> yeah. Now, we're, we'll we'll preface the bad part of saying, it happens with the infantry guys. We're sorry. <laughs> yeah. But also we're not sorry. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Don, so, you know, let's go back, man. You know, growing up um, in, in Louisiana, uh, tell us what what kind of led your path to the army. What do you remember about growing up um, in Louisiana? Well, man, you know, growing up a little small podunk town in Louisiana. You know, I had my grandpa was a World War II vet in the Navy. I had a bunch of uncles who were Vietnam wow. vets. My dad was 19 when I was born in 1973. So basically, he was he just missed the cusp as far as getting drafted to go to Vietnam. So he didn't really do any of that but I had a lot of uncles who served in Vietnam and Korea and uh and what really did it for me is I saw you know the war movies and stuff like that and uh I saw the longest day which I thought thought was one of the most bad things I'd ever seen (laughs) and then uh and then you know Rambo came out Uh oh. and uh I thought everybody in the army looked like that (laughs) or in the military period so I was like yeah I'm gonna be like Rambo But Who not, doesn't want to be Rambo? Yeah. <laughs> but not like as a little kid, man, I don't know. Ever since I was, you know, I can remember I always wanted to be a soldier. Yeah. Um, well, I'd say soldier, but either a Marine or a soldier because I had so many Marines in my family. And, uh, and you know, the Army just worked out better because I could jump out of planes and all that stuff. So it was it was more of a better fit for me, I think. Is that Would you say that's why you chose Army over the Marine Corps? Was It was kind of between airborne and you really wanted to do airborne stuff? Yeah, I mean, really the story about it is uh, my dad, I was talking to him when I was in high school and I spoke to the uh, Marine Corps recruiter. And uh, I told him, you know, I wanted to be a paratrooper. And he's like, well, the Marines, the only way you can do that is go force recon and you got to go and then you got to get selected and everything. And then... um then the Army recruiter, because they're all right there together at the mall, he was like, did you say Airborne? <laughs> and then the rest is history, you know. Capitalizing on the Marine Corps mess right there. Yeah. <laughs> the Marines were like, you don't need Airborne. We just jump out of planes and land on our feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, we love you, Marines. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, were you, 
you know, growing up, what do you, what do you remember about your, uh, about your parents and, you know, and kind of, you know, your path that, that specifically led you into the army? Well, I'll tell you, uh, what are some of your best memories maybe of home? My best memories of home was, uh, well, they're some of the best now that I'm grown, but when I was younger, you know, I thought they were some of the hardest. My dad was a pretty hard dude. He always kicked me in the ass when I needed it and everything. And, uh, in high school, him and when I was a freshman in high school, him and my mom got a divorce, and then you know I played the one against the other game and Ooh, uh-oh. got expelled my freshman year. So I wound up doing the five year uh, plan in college. I mean, in uh, high school, that's why that's why I went in the army at nineteen instead of eighteen. Um, but you know the 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 great memories I have, and I tried to, I always tried to kind of be like that as a father is like no matter how hard my dad was working when he got home he was always home with me you know Mm -hmm. like we'd either watch a movie or go fishing like we did a lot of fishing and then every tuesday and thursday night we would go because they had the dollar movies back then so we'd go see a movie and that's cool yeah i remember those yeah but he just you know he taught me that you know he's a hard but he was always there and wanted to be with the family and uh you know he worked his ass off and that's what you know, kind of gave me, it didn't kind of, it gave me my work ethic. And I think when I went in the military, I didn't really know if it was going to be like my life. Mm-hmm. But what I did know was I was afraid to let my dad down. Yeah. So uh, everything I did was to bust my ass and, you know, do what was right. And if I got hemmed up, I got hemmed up and I'd suck it up, and move on to the next thing, you know. But yeah, I mean, just being a little kid down there and then, you know, especially being in high school. You know, a lot of guys in the military can relate to this is you got all these friends and everything in high school back home. You were a bunch of freaking heathens, especially <laughs> infantrymen in high school. Yeah. And then you go in the military and you kind of get your together. You're still a freaking uh, idiot most of the time, but you get your together and then you go back home. And those guys that you were hanging out with are doing the same they were doing when you left. And, yeah. uh, you know, my dad always tells me that, that that was the best thing I ever did was getting away from home. Yeah, you know, to kind of grow up. So it's important, man. I don't think enough people realize that. Um, you know, kind of stepping away from your home environment and seeing the world and getting to, you know, kind of be around different ideas, different thoughts, um, different environments, different cultures. The military does a really good job. Of, you know, maybe you know, it's not like come see the world and you're like, you know, dancing in a circle. Yeah, <laughs> like the Navy commercials make. <laughs> yeah, there's no kumbaya. No, there's no kumbaya. But um, you know, like getting to actually like get out there in these, you know, even those stressful, austere environments. A lot of them, uh, you know, it, it is valuable to be amongst you know the other cultures and ethnicities and. You know, getting to spend that time in, in learning, you know, different backgrounds, man. It makes yeah. your life more diverse. It does. And it get, and uh, you get to see the absolute best in people, but you also get to see the absolute worst in people in the human race. So it kind of, you know, as a as an adult growing up in that environment, you know, you learn, you really kind of get an appreciation for what life is really about and, uh, and why you're here, you know, and what your path is. And, and you see... Even not just, you know, bad guys in combat, but you see people in the military and you're like, I don't want to be that guy. (laughs) You know, I want to be that guy. So that's, yeah, yeah. And the the culture, I mean, exactly, you hit the nail on the head. You know, me being from a little town in southeast Louisiana, there's no way I would ever hang out with dudes from, 
Los Angeles, California that were in freaking street gangs and all before they came into the military, and then we become like best friends and you know it's like yeah. and what's great about our our world and our our culture is as uh you know as warriors man is it's not about where you came from, it's about where you're at absolutely you know? and that's that's important. Absolutely. Kind of all those past mistakes, all those past issues in life kind of dissolve away, you know, when you get in your unit and, you know, it's like, all right, you know, just have my back loyalty. That's the number one thing. I tell people that all the time with friendships, man. It's like, I don't care where you came from. I don't care about your past. What I care about is you're going to have my back when I kick down that door. Yeah. And that those are who my best friends are, you know, like everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has issues. Everybody has a past. And, you know, some of them are better than others, you know, and from the mistake side. Uh, but, you know, the, the loyalty is my big thing. Like, you know, are you going to have my back when everybody else is, you know, is out of the picture? Yeah, man. For me, it's always been loyalty and integrity. Because yeah. uh, Integrity, very important. Yeah. Yes. You know, the, re the loyalty piece, just like you said, man, in our world, you can't afford to have somebody around you that's not loyal. At the end of the day, man, you're, you're resting your life in their hands and your buddies' lives and, you know, loyalties would get you through. And then integrity is something that I know if I uh, confide in you, man, that you're going to be truthful and honest with me, whether or not it's what I want to hear. Sometimes it's what I need to hear. And you have the integrity and the candor enough to actually tell me what the hell I need to hear. And, uh, <laughs> and I really, I really love that about our culture because most guys and gals actually get that after being in, you know, they understand that, there's no room for bull****. It's no, it's all about, hey, you know, you're all jacked up right now. Fix your mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this is me. Yeah. I'm not I'm, I'm not blowing any smoke up your ass. Whatever you see is what you get. Right, and, right. And, you know, that's the integrity piece is just be loyal to yourself and who you are. And if you, if you are that person, you're always going to tell people the truth. Yeah. You know? Well, you remember about first joining the Army and, and getting to your union and what were the lessons learned by, learned by Mac? In basic training, you know, what, what do you remember being some of the most important lessons? Well, I, I, I'll tell you a quick uh, story that's a really important one. Roll with it. And I'll never forget this one from basic training. Well, first off, you know, the drill sergeant called me McAdam from the get-go. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because I, uh, I was kind of a little smart, you know. And, uh, but the night we were doing the night infiltration course, I was, I was the squad leader. Mm-hmm. Drill sergeant's back there with us. You know, we walk through the woods looking at each other's cat eyes because that's before everybody had nods because yeah. I'm ancient. And, uh, <laughs> I had cat eyes. Yeah. yeah. You know, like some people had nods, some people didn't. Yeah. But back then in basic, you didn't have nods. You're just following right. the cat eyes. But we, uh, you know, walked through the woods, got to the uh, the berm, and on the backside, you know, they had the little bench and everything where you could sit down and all that. And the drill sergeant's like, stand by. I was like, Roger, drill sergeant. And then he left. And it had been like 15, 20 minutes, he didn't come back. And then the shooting, the, all the shooting and everything started and the explosions. And I was like, oh, shit, this must be a test. Mm -hmm. So I told the dudes, let's go. So we crossed the berm and we, we, we did the uh, high crawl, low crawl all the way through. You know, them shooting with back then, you know, you're thinking it's three foot over your head, but it's l literally like 18 foot over your head. <laughs> exactly. But, uh. <laughs> You get, you know, I, I'm, we're doing that. I'm all excited, and we get to the other end, and I'm all proud of myself. Like, I took initiative, and I did something. Drill Sergeant standing there. He's like, hey, McC I was like, yeah, Drill Sergeant. He's like, uh, hey, uh, stand by. And I was like, Roger. So I stood there, pray rest. All the dudes got on the bus, and then he's like, hey, uh, as soon as we get back to the Starship, 
you get off the bus, you come straight to me. I was like, Roger Drill Sergeant. So I went straight to him, and I thought he was going to, like, give me kudos and for taking the initiative. Yeah. Bad, no, it was not kudos. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he him my ass up for, like, you know, forever. And then he, then he said he was going to teach me a lesson about um, following instructions and, um, you know, having some tactical patience. And basically what he did was he had me take every sandbag from the uh, PT track, bring it to back then the hand-to-hand combat pit, and build a bunker. And then I had to take all the sandbags and put them back. Oh. What that night taught me was taking initiative is good, but also t- sometimes having that that patience and taking that tactical pause is even a little better. Mm. You know, because you can take a step back and look at things. and Lessons for combat. Yeah, like because... I didn't know what was on the other side of that wall. Mm-hmm. I was just a little, little hardcore who thought I was doing something cool, you know. And I, and you know, realistically, I could have got all those guys hurt because we didn't even know if they were ready or whatever, you know. Right. So, so I learned a lot that day. That was one of the, I think, the biggest lessons out of basic training I had. Plus, it was one of the suckiest times because <laughs> it was all night moving sandbags and putting them back and it was ridiculous that sounds terrible that, that was uh what 92 that you yeah. joined yeah, yeah so this is before you know for those of you listening this is you know pre-war we're kind of in our peacetime uh you know with small conflicts going on here and there but obviously not like you know we have with iraq and afghanistan the middle east now so you know what that story reminds me of <laughs> We were in uh, basic training at Fort Knox, and we had this one guy, I won't name him, but uh, he was just, you know, one of those dudes. It's like, you know, pretty, pretty, like, you know, he'd done ROTC and, you know, thought he knew it all. Uh, you know, he's sharp, you know, yeah. as far as, like, very smart, very quick on his feet. Uh, always had an answer for everything, you know, and, and pretty much, you know, about halfway through basic training was about ready to, you know, get recycled back two weeks. His drill sergeant's just couldn't stand him yeah. like he, he just thought he knew it all he was always you know kind of snapping back and drill sergeants were finally like you know listen you know we're gonna we're gonna move you over um across the street uh to to alpha you know and we're gonna move you back two weeks or whatever they sent him across the street that night like that day <laughs> and the drill sergeants like had him with his sea bags and uh, the, out front, and yeah. they had a drill sergeant sat on a chair with a megaphone on the on the on the parade ground, and it'd be like one black sock. <laughs> oh shit! And he shit. would grab one sock, sprint across to the drill sergeant, lay it down, and then sprint back to the bag. Damn, dude, we got back from our, like we were doing drills out in the field, like mount training and stuff. You know, yeah. getting ready for Iraq. This is 05. Uh, and we came back, and he was still doing it, man. And I, <laughs> so probably he was probably drill sergeants would like trade shifts. He was probably out there for like roughly like ten hours. Oh yeah, easy with all that all that equipment yeah. and doing it one piece at a time. Oh, dude, oh man. Yeah. But you know what? He was back with us like three days later, and uh, you know he was just glad he wasn't being recycled. But they uh, they, they gave him another chance, and uh, he snapped to it. So yeah. That story made me think about that. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Sometimes it just takes that, you know, something to to uh, give you that little bit of freaking initiative and drive and uh, pain. Yeah, pain. You know, <laughs> pain, pain, and uh, taking your time, man. That will motivate the hell out of you. Absolutely. So, who, where where was your first unit? Who were you with at well, first? I, I was actually uh, with the. Uh, 
Third U.S. Infantry, the Old Guard, was mm. my first duty assignment, so the Honor Guard. Awesome. Yeah, I, I got recruited um, out of airborne school and everything, and then uh, went there, didn't know what I was getting into. I got talked into it by the recruiter, and yeah, I had no clue what it was. <laughs> I did not know what to expect until I got there. Yeah. But what I, was it like when you got there? Well, it was like a fraternity, you mm. know. Um you were the if you were the freaking you know we called it back then new dicks yeah you can't do that now obviously but um yeah but if you were that guy you were getting you know every detail you were getting hemmed up daily uh you had to do a uh, three-week new man course they called it mm-hmm. so you had to learn how to do old guard shining your brass and shining your shoes and then uh pressing your uniforms and learning how to march and stand at attention for like two hours and pray rest for two hours and yeah it sucked but there's a lot of civilians who listen to this podcast so you can can you kind of tell us what the old guard is so we know um have a better idea of what that's like yeah so the old guard is the uh it's the uh honor guard uh in washington dc and it's basically uh the uh united states army's uh presidential escort uh slash uh you know we're the uh premier ceremonial unit you know for the uh, army and uh the uh the old guard actually um conducts uh, all the funerals in Arlington National Cemetery and they also uh uh everyone that walks the mat on the at the tomb of the unknown soldier are all part of the old guard yeah as well as the US army drill team and uh uh and it's funny when guys found out that I did this but uh I was in Alpha Company the old guard which was the commander in chief's guard oh wow and uh, we actually, for retirements and stuff, we carried muskets and wore colonial uniforms. Wow. Because our our barracks was uh, on the uh, other side of the river in D.C., not over in uh, Arlington. And uh, they, they set up Alpha Company, I think, in 1979 over there. They were established after George Washington's original lifeguard. So, wow. Hence the uh, Commander-in-Chief's Guard. Wow. And, you know, I did that. I also did, uh, you know, I did funerals in Arlington Cemetery. I did simple honors and full honors and uh, did uh, joint joined escorts and joint arrivals at the White House because back then if, if you had a top secret security clearance, then everyone who came, everybody for every White House ceremony or anything with the president came together as a regiment and then you detailed out because back then, you know, only a certain amount of people had top secret clearances. Right, so. right. But it was... Uh, I would tell you, as a young soldier, not knowing what to expect and going there and hating it at first because, you know, I thought I wasn't doing my job. Yeah. I mean, we did field training and everything just like everybody else, regular infantry stuff. But what it did teach me, and I'm so thankful that I went there, is discipline is the key to everything. That's cool. You know, it's it's not having a cool haircut. It's not any of that. It's about, hey... If you got to be ready at freaking six thirty, there you're gonna start at four thirty. Yeah, you know. So you there's so it. many details associated with those de- with those you know with the details with the burials and with. Yep. I mean, I don't think people understand that. Like the tomb of the unknown soldier, that that kind of stuff that he you know when he's yeah. walking out there, that doesn't happen within you know overnight. Like, no, that is a lot of detail. The guys you see walking the tomb during the day. Mm-hmm. I want to say back then they had to be with the uh, with the uh, the tomb for I want to say twelve months before they could even get a chance to walk the mat, wow. like uh, out 
in front of people. So at night when the cemetery is closed is when guys who complete the training, they march at night, um, and they're be constantly being evaluated. And if they mess anything up, they're out. Wow. Like there's no, if you make a mistake, you're out. Wow. Um, so it's the tomb is one of those, if you get guys, uh, get a, uh, tomb guard badge, no matter what they do throughout the rest of their career, if they get in any kind of trouble, that badge is taken away. Wow. Really? Yeah. Yep. Wow. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. So it's so, it's a lot so, of prestige behind yeah. that. And to do that, you know, I had people ask me, why didn't I do it? And to tell you the truth, back then, I don't think I was disciplined enough to do it. Really? Um, because that had to be your life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like just two, four, seven, getting, especially the training they had to do to, yeah. uh, to make it. So guys that guys and gals that walk that mat are truly dedicated. Now we'll say it's a little easier for them now because they don't have to shine their brass anymore. It's all <laughs> stay bright, but but they still do a kick job and they look great. Yeah, and, uh, they really do. Nothing gives me chills like that, like standing there and at attention and hearing those you know orders and then watching them just you know watching the the period of um observation and every little detail yeah. gone over and the look down the rifle and just check yep. i mean beautiful dude beautiful yeah, the, the changing of the guards just awesome man yeah, absolutely and it, you know and it's and i hope it's always there because it it shows people that come to see how much you know uh you know it, it kind of gives you if you've never seen an appreciation for what those guys are in that cemetery doing and mm -hmm. what it's about. So I want, I saw a, a clip on YouTube. I think it was where a, uh, somebody kind of was like, you know, chatting it up, uh, talking a little bit, uh, during the changing of the guard ceremony. Oh yeah. And <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it was requested that you remain silent during it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I saw that barked out yeah. and oh my gosh, dude, it was like a lightning bolt came out of the sky. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been, dude, I would have just died right in that moment and like curled up in a ball and like, ins you know, and like disappeared. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's about, it's about, uh, it's about those unknown soldiers in that tomb, you know, it's yeah. not about us. It's about them. Absolutely. Respect. And, yeah. uh, there are quite a few people out there not learning respect. Yeah. Unfortunately nowadays. Um, you know, Mac, you had a storied combat career, and I know you'll probably shake your head when I say that, uh, because that's what you guys do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but you, you did, you know, uh, retired command sergeant major. I mean, I, I have a great amount of respect for you in your position. And, you know, I you know, we just met a few days ago. Uh, but I, you know, did I ever think I would be sitting in the company of Sergeant Majors and like interviewing them and like I tried <laughs> to avoid you guys like the plague when I was in, you know, so, as most people did. Yes, yes. You know? So like getting to talk to you now and like getting to spend that time is pretty cool. You know, can you talk a little bit about um your your first tour and who that was with? Yeah, so my my first uh, combat tour uh, was the uh, initial invasion in Iraq in uh, wow. two thousand three. I was actually a weapon squad leader in a second 325 uh, airborne infantry regiment with 82nd airborne. We initially got uh we initially got uh deployed and we were going to jump into Baghdad with 75th Ranger Regiment my battalion was. Okay. Um because of the thunder run, the sandstorms and all that stuff the the jump got scratched um and we actually got on the birds that we were going to jump from. And we flew into Tulil Air Base in Iraq. And then uh, the next day, we gacked and went into a town called Asamoa. Mm -hmm. And we're in the biggest firefight that the 82nd Airborne had been in since World War II. Wow. And, wow. And we whooped that out.
<laughs> but uh, what was that? What was that like, though? You know, you, all the preparation and training. You know, ninety two, you joined. Kind of backtrack a little bit. Um, what What do you remember about uh, September eleventh? Well, man, I tell you, uh, September eleventh, I was in. I was actually in Hawaii with the tw- with the one two seven Wolfhounds, uh, and uh, I remember that morning. I was a. I was a. Young staff sergeant, but I was a platoon sergeant at the time. Yeah. And uh, my first sergeant gave me a call, and there it was like 3 o'clock in the morning, maybe 4 o'clock in the morning. And he called me up, and he's like, hey, Mac, turn your TV on. And I was like, okay, first sergeant. Turn TV on, and I was like, what the hell? Yeah. And he's like, hey, man, I need you to get in as soon as you can. And I literally lived uh, just right across the street from Schofield Barracks on Wheeler Airfield. Mm-hmm. And it took me three hours to get to work. Wow. Um, because, you know, the security had hit. My first sergeant actually never even made it into work that day because he lived out in Hilamano. But Wow. But what I'm what I mainly remember about it is, you know, seeing what happened on T V and then, you know, actually starting to get all the information as to what was going on and and uh what really me and quite a few other guys there were talking about it um that day. We were with the twenty fifth and we were like so like pissed off because we knew that we weren't the ones going to get the call yeah because our theater of operations was the pacific back then you know we were the pacific reaction force right and uh you know so september 11th happened that day you know everything kind of changed for everybody in the army then because uh we realized that you know that was right there it was like our war is finally starting for guys from my generation, you know, because we had been in the Army for, you know, qu- some of us quite a few years and trained our butts off, and we're like, hey, is it always going to be like this? You know, we're just shooting shit up but never actually getting to go take out bad guys, and the next thing you know, that happened. Yeah. And then... Your question was forever answered. Yeah. <laughs> but we kind of felt like we were on the sidelines, you know. Yeah. When Afghanistan kicked up in 2001. And, uh, you know, I told my wife, I was actually even... Um, thinking about getting out of the army um, before that, and then uh, so I reenlisted uh, to go to the 82nd Airborne. Uh, I got there in um, August of '02, mm-hmm. and as soon as I got there, um, there were rumors that we had a big mission coming up, but nobody really knew what. So I got there in August of '02, and then um, and then February of '03, I was deployed. Wow! Um, and we trained our asses off because we knew it was coming. Yeah. Um. What what was that? What was that? Uh, you know, did you feel ready? Did you feel excited? Did you feel ready to go? I mean, you don't yeah. know what you didn't know what Iraq was going to be like. None of us no. did. You know? No, the only thing we knew is, you know, at that point, uh, you know, guys like me, we had been training to fight the Russians for freaking years, right? You know, so we were ready for an army on army battle, and uh, you know, at, at that time, Iraq was saying they had the biggest army in the world and a lot of Americans were going to get killed if we come in and blah, blah, blah. And we were like, screw that. We're going to go crush these motherfuckers, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but for me, the hardest part, being all excited, being motivated to go, go do my job, and I was like all hua hua, ready to go, go kick it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it came time to say goodbye to my little girls and my wife. Yeah. And I never, I had never had a hard time before, you know, because it was always training. Yeah. But, you know, that one was like, I didn't know what we were going into. None of us did. We didn't even know where we were going because they wouldn't tell us. Right. Um, 
And, you know, leaving them was like one of the hardest things I did. And then uh, I actually didn't get to talk to my wife for, it was about four months. Wow. Um, when we finally got to Baghdad and uh, a guy had a satellite phone. Wow. Um, but, you know, we went into, we went into uh, Iraq, you know, we were like better trained than I, you know, we did so much training. It's uh, right now with the way everything works and the equipment you have and all, like you just, you can't get out and get the kind of training that we used to get. Yeah. Um, you know, we would go out to the woods and be out there for 30 days at a time. Yeah. And at the time, it totally freaking sucked. Yeah. But when you look back on it, it sucked. But we practiced those drills, patrol bases, everything else, and it was all the that we did in Iraq. Because Iraq, when we first went in in the initial invasion, it was us movement to contact, um, reacting to contact, taking out bad guys, all that stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't counterinsurgency or any of that stuff. It was taking out an army. Right. And, uh, yeah, so... We went in there, man, and, uh, you know, I was in, yeah, you, you asked me, you know, how it felt. I will tell you, the night um, we, we got outside of Samoa in our, in our patrol base, um, I remember my company commander told me, you know, I was the uh, support by fire element for the company because okay. I was the senior staff sergeant. Our job was to move up to uh, Highway 8, um, secure the first bridge with a support by fire position so the rest of the company could move forward our platoon being the uh main effort and then the rest of the company move up and then uh so there were two key bridges and then the other bridge about a mile down the road was our first battalion was taking that one um and you know i went in as a weapon squad leader that night um i counted all my equipment and everything and i remember when we were leaving fort bragg when we were getting ammo the guys were like what uh, here, get your ammo. I was like, how much we get? And he's like, how much you want? So <laughs> I had 4,000 rounds per gun. Wow. Uh, I had, I want to say I had six law rockets for the squad. Yeah. I had, uh, two javelins. I had finagled a way to get two Oh threes for my, uh, my ammo bearers. You were ready to destroy. Oh yeah. Uh, that night we got our mission brief. We're outside the city and then the shock and awe started, you know, everything's getting exploded. It's just blowing up everywhere. And then uh, we're we're walking all night to go in, and then me and my guys bumped up uh, to go set up that first support by fire position right on the other side of the road by the bridge. Uh-huh. And I'll never forget, man. Like I'm I'm going up there, and I bring my AG with me. Yeah. Um, you know, because back then weapon squads knew what the hell they were doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I brought my AG. <laughs> you up. sound like a crusty old command yeah, sergeant major. Yeah. <laughs> but I brought my AG up there with me, and um, you know, we we. We established our position to bring the guns up. And I was like, what the f*** was that noise? And he's like, they're shooting at us, Sergeant. I'd never been shot at, man. (laughs) You know, you heard it on the range and all, but it wasn't the same. Yeah, 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 of course. You you know what it sounds like now, Uh but you never know that until you hear it that first time. When you you hear shooting by you, but when it's actually shooting at you, it's a little different. Oh, yeah, and it's it's a strange, like, recognition pattern where you're like, no no way anybody would, like, shoot at me. Yeah, Yeah, because it takes you a minute. How dare they? (laughs) Yeah, it takes you a minute to be like, wait. Are they shooting at me? Wait, you know, so like, is this a part where we start trying to kill each other? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, is that dude seriously shooting at me? So weird. But nah, man. Yeah, we went in there our first uh, big mission, and uh, what's it? What's it like first uh, pulling that trigger? You know, did, what what did you feel? What was the feeling? Did was it all instinctual? Yeah, by it then? was. It was all instinctual, man. Like, yeah. uh, 
people ask me that all the time, you know, as a as a squad leader back then and uh you know, pulling the trigger was it was just part of the drill, man. You yeah. know, you target, you engage, yeah. you know. Um just like anything else, you know, react to contact. You're you're conducting that drill and you don't think about it. And uh you know, that firefight lasted us about probably seven hours. Um, wow. They did the James Deets print about it. I got it up in my living room. Um, it's pretty much, it's my my squad in the in the painting. Cool. Um, which is, it's a bad painting. It's a, uh, you know, we, we, the firefight was over. We took out a of guys, a bunch of dudes. So basically it was us on one side of the river and the bad guys on the other in the city. Yeah. And they were in all the high rise buildings and everything. And they had bunkers everywhere. And, uh, you know, we were just hemming them up. Yeah. I was down to 140-something rounds for both guns out of, wow. of 4,000. One, one of my gunners had shot so much his bipod legs broke off. Wow. Yeah. Um, we, uh, but we got, I remember, what I do remember, and I always, uh, I always push this to guys. Um, you know, I never talked about being a bad or any of that, but what I always told guys after that, was you know how in the military we always say you got to be in shape to get to the fight blah blah blah. Uh-huh. I can tell you this, if your is walking across the desert into a a hot battle uh-huh. and you know there's bad guys everywhere, your ain't falling out. Yeah, you're not you're not gonna be left. <laughs> no, but when that seven hour firefight goes down and your rucksack feels like it weighs two thousand pounds, yeah, and your adrenaline goes down and you have no energy and then you got to walk ten clicks back to an assembly area. Mm. That's the worst walk of your life. Oh, I'm sure. And the only thing that would get you there is your physicality. Yeah. Because your mind done gave up and your heart was like, screw you, dude. Yeah. You know? So the only thing that's going to get you there is your physicality. Yeah. And uh, that's why I always try to get across the guys because we always preach you got to be able to get to the objective. Yeah. But the real important reason to be in shape is because once you're done with that one fight, yeah, you're moving to the next. That's true. You know? People don't understand that adrenaline dump. Yeah. And you know what it's like when that dump goes down, like it is like, like I had never felt anything like that. And you know, you got adrenaline from jumping out of planes or doing live fires or whatever, but nothing like that feeling, you know, I remember we had one guy, I'm not going to say his name, but he was just laying in the sewage. He's like, (laughs) just leave me, man. (laughs) You know, we're like, no dude, get up, (laughs) you know, but it's cause it sucks so bad, you know, but, um, but you know, it's like. It is one of those things, you know, we went into that first battle and uh, I did my job, you know, what a weapon squad leader is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. I did a support by fire. We just, we lit it up. So I had a, my first magazine was nothing but tracer rounds. Wow. So I was just marking targets everywhere. Yeah. And a couple targets got hit by me. Uh-huh. If that's any, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I bet they did. Oh, and I will say this too. I, I, and I did preach this to guys too, based off my first combat experience was when we were walking in that night, mm-hmm. I had a CCO back then because only, we only had a couple of ACOGs and a platoon and all. Yeah. And my CCO fogged up on me. Oh. So I just took it off and put it in my butt pack. Yeah. And I, I popped up my, my backup iron sight, my BIS, and mm-hmm. I was ready to go. And that's why I told guys, you better make sure that mug's zeroed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was my first big firefight. Luckily, I had two machine guns with me, too, but I didn't have any kind of optic on my weapon. Right. Yeah. I, but I could still hit, like, dead-eye dick because, yeah. you know, my iron sights were zeroed in, so. Yeah, good, good old iron sights, yeah. man. I remember basic training. That, that was a big thing for me. I remember we got our, like, you know, ACOGs and, yeah. you know, CCOs and, you know, going into 
you know, going into Iraq, and it was like, what is this thing? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I had had no real experience with that. So it's always important to train how you fight, be prepared for technology to break down, yep. and be ready when it goes back to, you know, the old saying, cavemen and clubs, you know? Yeah, because <laughs> like, yeah. that truly happens, man. And yeah. you have to be able to, just because something breaks don't mean you're not continuing mission you know you're gonna go and you're gonna freaking make it happen so that's one kind of regret i have is like you know i i was decently versed in hand-to-hand combatives but i just wish i would have taken that more seriously you know even though i never knew needed it i feel like that's an obligation as a soldier is to absolutely know how you're going to get into it when you when all things break down yeah that's it's true you know how important that is being part of the 82nd yeah you have to what you have to understand as a soldier man is like um, you know, anything you do, anything you do, you should be an expert at like anything, Absolutely. anything that you try, you should, once you are, if I just hand you this, then immediately you should start focusing and figuring out, Hey, how can I be the best I can be with this piece of equipment? Or if you send me to combatives level one, two, three, how can I be the best dude in this course and kick everybody's right know, and understand and soak it up like uh i've had people ask me if i have regrets and everything mm-hmm. and you know we all we all did stuff that we know we could have done better over the years yeah yeah but when you look back on it man it's all relative because yeah. you know even if if you sucked at something but you were you were a good dude and a good soldier mm-hmm. you learn from it oh for sure and you just you got so much better yeah. and uh yeah i mean that's what i love about the military you know is you can make mistakes mm-hmm. as long as it's not when it's game time. Right, yeah. You know? Yeah. And you For can sure. make, you can make mistakes out on that range and that's where you really learn from it. But you you don't only learn from the mistake, but you learn from all your buddies. True. Because everybody has some input. Uh huh. You know, and that's it's an environment of peer pressure in the best kind of way, right? Yeah. And guys breaking yeah. each other down constantly watching because at the end of the day, if you know you kick down that door and that guy's gotta have your back, yeah. you're gonna want that guy to succeed. Exactly. 100%. So you're going to be rooting for each other, right? Yeah. Positive reinforcement. Yeah. It might look like negative sometimes. Yeah, I mean, in, in, but, you know, in my case, negative reinforcement. Yeah. But but that's... But now it, positive for those guys that remember you. Yeah. You know? But at the time... Yeah. It sucks. You know, most of the time they're like, that dude's a total freaking prick, man. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. But it's because, you know, you're doing your job and you're... You want to save lives. You know, like, for example, when I was a first sergeant, you know, we do uh, platoon live fires or whatever... And me and the CO would be like good cop, bad cop. I was always bad cop because he'd tell them everything they did well, and then I'd go and just crush their soul. Yeah. And uh, I remember I had one of my platoon sergeants one time. He came in my office. He's like, first sergeant, can you at least uh, give them a little bit of positive reinforcement? I was like, that ain't my f***ing job. (laughs) You know? Yeah. (laughs) Because at that time, we were deploying, coming back, deploying, coming back. And in my mind, I was the guy that had to – that had to just keep everything glued together. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't treat guys like, yeah, but I would crush their soul. Right. You know? And, right. and, uh, I understand. And, yeah. And that's important. Yeah. And, uh, you know, anything you do, I mean, obviously even in the civilian world, it's kind of like that when you're a boss, but you just don't go to the extreme you do in the military because right. it's not life and death. Yeah. You know, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also, like, people can quit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, people can quit in the military. in the Army. And in the Army, you know, you you, you don't want guys to quit. You no, want no. them to succeed. You want them to keep pushing because, you know, they're part of the team, man. And it's, uh, 
you know, it's it's always funny when you see that young guy that you think is going to quit, mm-hmm. and then he winds up having the most get up out of everybody. Oh yeah, dude. He just like like you and I were talking the other day. He just kind of genetically robbed, you know. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> that's true. But damn, he's got some heart. Yeah, he's got know? some heart. Yeah. Gotta love him. So, yeah. how long was that first tour of combat? Uh, well, it was it it wound up being right at a year for the uh, for the battalion, but I came back uh, about a month and a half before they did because I got wounded. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. You yeah. were wounded on your first tour. Yeah. Okay. I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. So where were you guys uh, based out of while you were making movements? Uh, Talil? Uh, so basically, when we left Talil, um, we uh, we just went from city to city all the way up to Baghdad, just clearing them. Set up uh, shop wherever you were? Yeah. So, you know, we'd sleep wherever. That- Mountain training except live? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we went Samoa, Diwania, Ramadi. We went through Najaf, but the Marines were there. We just kind of did like a uh, did a uh, friendly movement across their their front lines, you know, because uh-huh. we had to get to where we were going. Uh, we were in Habania, and uh, oh, yeah, good old Habania. Yeah, a lot of stories from there. And uh, and then you know we went up to Baghdad. Um, so we got to Baghdad. I want to say in like uh, May, May June. Okay. Yeah. What was it like kind of skipping from city to city? You know, what were the different spots? Did you recognize any spots as particular problem spots that you knew, like, oh, this is going to be an issue for us yeah. in the future? Uh, well. But you're not thinking about the insurgency necessarily, right? No. 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 Now, I will tell you, when we were when we were moving up, Diwania, it had more people there that were unfriendly. Mm. Um, so Interesting. And it just seemed like a lot of the guys, you know, that were – in civilian clothes and everything, were not civilians. Yeah, you yeah. Know? They didn't want you there. Yeah, and, and we got, you know, I actually had my weapon squad. Um, we were moving into a uh, blocking position one night there. It was There was this palm tree orchard thing um, right on the canal. Like a grove? Yeah, and we were uh, we were moving, and we actually had a, had a close ambush. But, oh, wow. But luckily, those can't shoot. They just spray. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, my weapon squad leader, I mean, squad, uh, instead of just turning and running, turned and freaking maneuvered. Yeah. So we had 240s and freaking, you know, all that shit on those dudes, so they didn't, they didn't have a chance. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Diwania was a weird, um, we did a lot of shooting in Diwania, but it was, um, the people there were weird. Like, when we went through um, Asamoa, uh, leaflets had been dropped and everything, and it was like, hey, get out of the city if you yeah. want to live, because that... What had happened in Samoa was the Fedayeen had circled back, and there were about 4,000 of them in the city okay. waiting to come up behind 3rd ID to take them out. Mm. Because 3rd okay. because ID was pushing through, and God love them, they were doing a hell of a job, but the one thing they didn't do was clear the cities they were pushing through. Mm, okay. So just gave the bad guys the ability to kind of So they were kind of just them. destroying the th- yeah. things in front of them and then moving. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, that's why... Uh, the 82nd, um, the uh, Marines, and the 101st, we had to take those southern cities all the way up to Baghdad mm. to uh, clear them out because okay. the bad guys that came behind and they were going to go try to take 3rd ID out the tanks. You know, right, yeah. And cut off supply lines. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, what do you, you know, when you finally get up to Baghdad, what's what's the mood? Well, when we, when we got to Baghdad... Uh, it had uh, turned into like the Wild West. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. It almost felt like we were kind of like um, law enforcement slash bounty hunters, <laughs> because all the Fedian generals and everybody tried to hide into the populace, and uh, we would get information, and then we 
nightly we were doing raids um mm. you know taking out high value targets a lot of times arresting them without firing a shot because we get there so quick but then sometimes having to take them out and yeah. uh and uh you know baghdad uh, when we first got there was you know we were we were just getting information on bad guys and we were just going to take them out um and then you know towards the end of the summer uh it started getting more they started bringing more people into baghdad that were bad guys that were coming in and it wasn't even at first it didn't even seem like they were there for us it was more they were there to pillage yeah you know yeah because it was easy pickings right so um a lot of the lo- you know people would always tell us alibaba's over there alibaba's here so we go take them out um you know i mean it was it was it was uh it was pretty crazy and then uh i think we had our first guy uh in the battalion got hit with an ied i want to say it was in uh august um it was a guy from our delta company and he got killed we didn't even know what ieds were wow really yeah and when they started you know we'd see some and we'd go pick it up or kick it and be like, what the hell is that, you know? Yeah. Before we even knew what they really were. Wow. Um, but, and, you know, um, we as a, as a light infantry unit going into the invasion, we had to use whatever vehicles and everything we had and stuff like that. So we didn't have military vehicles for a long time. Right. We had civilian vehicles and stuff like that that we had to patrol with. And, um, and uh, we really didn't start getting hit, hit, like as far as like, bombs and ieds and all until we started using military vehicles because at night they could hear us coming right you know and they knew it was a humvee so um like i remember uh there was we got commanded uh we had got these two green humvees and the bad guys thought all tan humvees were up armored Uh which hardly any were up armored back then yeah so we got told that we needed to make them look like armored humvees yeah so I, I had to tell my guys to go take our wash buckets, fill them up with dirt, uh-huh. and put mud all over the trucks. Uh. <laughs> so we basically painted the Humvees with mud. <laughs> That's hilarious. Now, they did look tan. Yeah, but, yeah. That's hilarious. But they sure as hell wasn't stopping a bullet or No, no. Yeah. <laughs> wow, man. It, what was that, you know, what was that like kind of when that first guy got killed, you know, that realization? Well, it was, uh, you know, it, it just kind of, it threw us for a loop a little bit because everything we had been doing to that point was getting shot at and shooting back. Right. And, you know, they were just driving and then they got blown up, Yeah. you know? So, and then, you know, after that, a couple more hit and, you know, we would make jokes and all cause we didn't have any armor, no doors, none of that. So it'd be like going and like, you know, me and my buddies would be like, dude, I'm gonna squinch up for this curve. Maybe something's gonna happen, you know, cause you don't, <laughs> You know, you didn't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, I know the, the feeling. And then we all know the, the history of the IEDs after that. But, yeah, they got – that was when they first started. Yeah, technology started changing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it goes back in the kind of history with, like, you know, enemy and, uh, you know, friendly, like, figuring each other out, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I think Chechens were some of the first to kind of bring in, you know, suicide vests yep. and, you know, use those ball bearings. Um NIED yeah. technology, a lot yeah. of that came from them biting Spetsnaz. They brought in the, the, a lot of snipers as well because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you'd hear people talk about snipers from the Iraqi army and all, but they weren't snipers. They were just dudes shooting. Right, yeah. But those Chechenians were snipers. Yeah. You know, they could shoot from five, 600 meters away. And, yeah. You know, so. With some accuracy, yeah. I yeah. remember my squad leader, uh, Carter Chick, you know, my, my best friend from my unit, 
who we unfortunately lost a few years back talking about, you know, losing, you know, losing uh, quite a few guys to, to a one to a Chechen sniper in a particular area. And I think it was the fourth ID finally just pulled the tank up to a building and just, uh, you know, laid it down. Yeah, leveled it. <laughs> but when they got to it, when they were actually patrolled through the area, they found him in the rubble. He was a Chechen. And he, and he uh, sat up with a forty five and started firing at them from the rubble as they were walking up on his position. Yeah. I mean, those guys like to fight. No, they're dedicated fighters. Yeah, very. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I fought quite a few of them up in uh, Missoula. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Deployment. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, go ahead and uh, tell me about that second deployment. Yeah, well, we were uh, – our second deployment, man, we got uh, – we, we had been back for about a – it was right at a year from our first deployment, and uh, we got uh, called up on the uh, DRF for uh, the elections over in Iraq. Uh, so my battalion were the only ones that deployed from 2nd Brigade, and uh, we did, we deployed in um, December of '04. And uh, our mission at first, we got sent to uh, to Baghdad to the Green Zone. Uh, well, outs- outside the green zone, uh, highway fi- highway of death there from the green zone to biop. Okay. Uh, our job was to go clear it out and get rid of all the bad guys because for the elections, all the dudes were getting their whooped. Was that Tampa uh, or Irish? I think it was route Irish. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was route Irish. And uh, so we got there, man. We pushed out in sector, and uh, we were there for about two weeks. Didn't hardly uh, come into any resistance. The highway was clear. Uh, my platoon, we found a V-bid at a dude's house we raided. Um, that was about it. And then we heard about the, uh, the chow hall bombing up in, uh, Missoula at, uh, Camp Stryker. Yeah. And, uh, then my, we, uh, my squad leader, uh, from Iraq was on that cleanup detail. Oh, really? Yeah. Dang. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, we got a call and then, uh, we got told, Hey, it's clear down here. We're, uh, we're moving up to Missoula. And uh, we got on we got on birds, uh, yeah, it was December 31st, so New Year's Eve, rolled up to Missoula, and then uh, got down there, pushed out in sector, and it was a straight-up Wild West. Uh, we were out there with uh, the 25th, I want to say it was 2nd Brigade, no, it wasn't 2nd Brigade, 25th, I think it was, uh, I think it was the 3rd Brigade, but uh, yeah, they were out there, strikers and everything, you know, shooting it up every day, and then, you know, you had a battalion of ground pounders that came out there and we just started wreaking havoc and fighting chechenians every day and uh, uh you just pushing out in sector and uh i would say it was fun but it was cold mm-hmm. snowing raining you know all the time so yeah it, it pretty much sucked but. people don't think of that when they think of iraq but the truth is up north it does get pretty cold even when you work a little bit north of baghdad man i was in taji and the rainy season was awful and that mud man like it's oh you know epically bad <laughs> yeah like there were days up in missoula man where we were on patrol and it just rained for days and you're walking through you know the streets are flooded so you're walking through a foot of water freezing your ass off mm-hmm. like our you know we would set up nais so we would go to a house for the night and uh you know watch intersections or whatever <laughs> and my guys would look for a house with power because they mm-hmm. knew it probably had a heater you know yeah. what i mean but uh yeah so what do you remember about the dynamic of Mosul and like what that city was like when you when you got there? When we got there, man, it was a it was literally uh it was just like a lawless sector, man. Like it was uh you know, basically we went out into 
into the uh, industrial district of Missoula, um, right outside of Old Missoula. Um, we were right by uh, the uh, traffic circle. It was a Yarmouk traffic circle. It was a real big, I think, route Tampa and uh, some other routes ran into it. And uh, that was that area was where all the bad guys were doing storing a lot of weapons caches and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, we just went in, raided a lot of, took a lot of caches, blew a lot of shit up, and killed a lot of bad guys. But they had some really good fighters out there, especially the snipers. Yeah. Uh, Chechnyan, again. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that and the the enemy that you were fighting as opposed to that first deployment. What was the difference in that? Well, the difference was, you know, when we were fight, fighting the Iraqi army, mm-hmm. you know, they would fight. And then when we were ripping their ass, they would give up. Right. You know. The difference was when we were, when we were up in Missoula, the fighters wouldn't give up. You know, they were going to fight to the death or get away, one of the two. So, and they could shoot. So, like, they knew how to use their weapons. They wasn't, like, just spraying over walls or any of that. They were taking well-aimed shots and, you know, maneuvering on us and doing all the stuff they were supposed to do. Like, uh, there was one day we had a big, huge firefight. Uh, it was in the Yarmouk traffic circle. I don't know how many bad guys were out there, but basically it was uh, the uh, fourth ID guys, or no, I'm sorry, first ID guys with the Bradleys. We had our Delta Company, Heavy Weapons Company, and then my platoon went out on foot. We had uh, aircraft and everything else, and um, there was a load of bad guys. And the firefight lasted a while, and we went searching, and we couldn't figure out why, how we couldn't find any bodies of the bad guys. Well... Later on, I got to see satellite imagery of their Kazivac plan, and it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, they had uh, motorcycles, like, loads of them parked in the little alleyways and on. As they would take it casually, they'd throw them on a motorcycle and take off. Yeah. Just get him out of the AO because they didn't want the propaganda saying that, you know, because they wanted to say they, they effed us up, but they didn't. we didn't get them, you know. So, right, right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What you know? Did you guys experience any losses when you were over there that second time? Yeah, we did. Uh, um, fortunately, you know, for me, I didn't personally lose anybody in my in my uh, platoon, but the battalion lost uh, lost a few guys. Yeah. Um, and like uh, in our company, we had a couple guys wounded, but for the most part, we laid scunion, and luckily, you know, the wounds that guys had were not that that bad. You know. Yeah. What do you think makes Mosul such a difficult city to to fight in? Why do you think we never really, um, you know, conquered that city? What, what, what do you think about it? Was it politics? Was it, you know, uh, just not, you know, finishing the job? Like, what about that city made it so complex and complicated? Well, I think, one, just the uh, the area it's in. Um, and, uh, you know, it has a big a big Kurdish population in there and uh, the— and the uh, the tribal sects in Missoula, you know, they were always fighting and everything. And then once the war kicked off, then everybody's like, hey, we could take control of this. So everybody was fighting for power. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we went in there, you know, we were pretty much fighting whoever had the most power and who was trying to control the city. So you're saying there was a lot of civil war yeah, going oh, on yeah. in the city? A lot of civil war. And it was and it wasn't just one against the other there were there were multiple different um tribes that would be fighting each other and stuff like that so mm, interesting yeah. and uh and the you know the big warlords would hire the chechnyan guys to come in and take out their rivals and steal their stuff and stuff like that and then that and then they hire them you know the snipers to come in and take us out yeah because we were clearing everything out so yeah wow yeah so what what was your main uh mission there at the time like was it just to clear out the the scumbags get rid of yeah 
All the bad dudes. Yeah, well, our mission, man, when we went in, uh, so like I said, the 25th had been in there fighting their butts off, man, and uh, and uh, it was a really hard fight for them, and they needed somebody to go get inside the city you know, on foot and, you know, put boot to ground face-to-face and literally clear out that city, and that was our job was to go in and clear. So we cleared from, you know, block to block, house to house. Um, uh, we lived in a vegetable ghee factory out there with rats all over it right wow. in the middle of the city um but yeah it was uh you know our job was to go in clear all the bad guys out so they could try to bring some stability and uh and the big the big the reason we were sent to do that is because we were originally sent to secure the elections down in baghdad and since that was kind of quiet they sent us up there because they knew what all the going on there was no way they would be able to conduct the election safely right so you know we cleared out we actually you know, we did a good job, I think, and um, and then uh, when it was election time, we actually helped the elections go off. You know, and we pulled a lot of security, set up a lot of a lot of Overwatch positions, ambushes, stuff like that, and um, ensured. And what we did well was we back then we didn't want those guys to know that we were there securing mm-hmm. the elections. So, right. So we did it with some standoff. So the people, it was about the people. You know, so it wasn't about us. It was about them, and we were there if we needed to come in and do something. Yeah, you know? that's awesome. Yeah, what what would you say was the most difficult part of the dynamic of that particular deployment? What what would you say was there any one thing, or was it a litany of things? Was it a yeah. ton of issues? Nah, it was a litany of thing, man. Yeah. Things, man. Um, I mean, the most dip- difficult part for us was, you know, we all had the Baghdad first deployment in our heads, and we were gonna just lay scunion, you know, like we did and everything, and um, and then. We get up there, and you know, yeah, we're we're kicking dudes, out, but at the same time, you know, we got like legit no BS snipers that are taking dudes out, yeah. and uh, and you know, we're we're using our scouts and everybody to try to find those guys, but ultimately, you know, it come down to bringing in some cool guys in there with some counter sniper teams to help us find them and get rid of them. Yeah, um, but yeah, it was a it was a litany of things, man. I mean, because obviously it was IEDs, you know, they had numerous weapons caches and just it was it was the wild west man it's tough when you're fighting an enemy that is so complex because the dynamic of that area is always changing the the culture's changing society is almost changing before your eyes i mean you've got you know whatever you know sudanese somali chechens you know kurds you know people coming in from turkey probably you've got every type of dynamic saudi probably you got every type of dynamic of different foreign fighters probably iranian revolutionary guard you know you got so many different dynamics of fighters coming in because they want that city right because mosul is a you know wholly important city and uh and the compl- and the complexity of that is that it's always changing so you can't possibly keep up because there's always different sects doing battle no i mean you clear it and then somebody else is going to come in and take it over and keep going i mean just 3 4 years ago the 82nd was back in there clearing it again yeah you know yeah difficult difficult yeah. place that that i think out of all the cities in iraq that's the one that fascinates me the most um, you know, th- there's obviously those incredible battles that the Marines took on Ramadi and Fallujah and guys from the 82nd and other army divisions as well. Um, and you know, Baghdad, of course, but 
Mosul is like the one city that really just kind of blows my mind in Iraq, right? You know, I just hear guys come back from there and said, you got up north, you know, let's just say, you know, you were a little bit unnerved as you got yeah. a little closer to the city, you know, it's just you knew it was going to be a fight no matter what. Yeah, and I mean, you're so close to the borders up there and everything. It's just easy for all those foreign fighters to come in, and then it's easy for the, for lack of a better term, the warlords to come in and take over. Right, um, yeah. And, you know, unfortunate for them, they had some dudes that came in and would walk in their backyard and, you know, kick the shit out of them, and they wasn't used to that. So. Right, yeah. And I think the understanding for them, though, is that they always know, like, we're going to eventually yeah. go home. we're eventually going to leave. Yeah. Because, so. uh, you know... It's like anything else. We go over there for a few weeks. It's hot and heavy, and then it kind of slows down because they know, hey, we just got to wait them out. Very true. So, you know, Don, this is something that we tackle very often on this podcast, but talking about this coming home, right, homecoming, was there something different in you? Did you feel different? You know, I know that first tour had to affected you, and you were and you were wounded on that first tour, right? Yeah, I got the first tour I came home on a medevac bird through Germany to oh, Walter wow. Reed. Yeah. How so, about what would happen there? Well, I got... Um, you can't just tell me and then not tell well, me the story. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, I mean, I got... I should have zigged when I zagged and, you know, all that good shit. But, uh, no, nah, man, I was... Uh, so, uh, in, I want to say June, I got I got uh, selected for uh, Sergeant First Class while we were over there. This is in uh, 03 and during the invasion. And uh, yeah, I got I got selected for Sergeant First Class, and then I was hoping I'd take a platoon in my company. And Sergeant Major's like, "No, you're going to Alpha Company because they need some help." Mm-hmm. So I went over to Alpha Company, took a platoon. Um, my first month with the platoon, we did more probably than you know they had did the whole time they were there, as far as like taking out bad guys and stuff. Um, and it wasn't because of me; it was just because of the missions that popped up. Right, um, like we had a big big clearance op to uh take out you know muhammad's army mm. uh guys we took out one of the big guys on the list um we arrested a bunch of guys you know took out bad guys and all and uh you know i was a young staffs aren't promotable just young and dumb and ready to go and kick some ass. and uh we were out there in sector all the time and you know we knew our we knew our ao knew it like the back of our hand we had we had a platoon sector that was probably like 10 square blocks yeah and basically what had happened was the bad guys put a hit out on me, um, mm. which they would do back then because they knew the platoons in those sectors and they knew who was doing what. One day, it was October 8th, um, my, I had a new PL. He was uh, going to check on some guards we had at the Al-Rashid Bank and Outdoor Market in Baghdad, well, outside of the market. And uh, we we had two Humvees, no doors, no tops. You know, they were regular truck Humvees. And uh, he was going out and he's like, hey, Sergeant Mac, you want to go with me? I was like, yeah, I'll go, sir. Me and me and one of my squad leaders had a little uh, uh, a little PlayStation, you know, one of the the unlocked PlayStations. Yeah. And I'll never forget. I had my Dynasty at LSU going on NCAA and everything, <laughs> and I paused it. But yeah, I was like, "Yes, yeah, sir, I'll go out." So I went out and uh, we went and checked. Everything was good. And then when we were coming back out of the market, I told my my uh, team leader, Sergeant Bergner, who was riding in the truck with me in the back, I was like, "Hey, dude, jump in the front, get some shade. I'll jump in the back and pull security." Mm-hmm. And um, coming right out of the market man they hit my hit my truck with uh five one five five rounds tied together um luckily they weren't good at ieds yet so they had buried them under the asphalt so the asphalt took you know some of the blast otherwise it would have just obliterated the vehicle yeah but uh yeah i i mean 
I remember it like it was yesterday, the actual blast, you mm. know, like, because I was on the back of the truck facing out, uh, felt this big, just pressure. And then I remember, you know, I took my left hand and I put it on my face and I seen blood all over it. And I was feeling for my weapon because I had it on a D-ring. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing you know, I'm looking up and, you know, Sergeant Bergner's telling me I'm going to make it. Mm. And I was like, what the, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I had a big, huge piece of shrapnel in my hip and, uh, he still says it when I when I looked down. He said, "All I said was, is my junk still there?'" <laughs> you know. So he uh, he cut my pants open. He's Classic. like, "Yeah." He's like, "It's still there, Sergeant Mac." I mean, I do have shrapnel in it, but yeah. you know. But uh, yeah. So I had a big piece of shrapnel there. I had a uh, a piece that peeled my eyelid back, where you, you could see my skull. My lip was split all the way up to my skull. I had a uh, shrapnel in my right underneath my temple, my neck. I still have it like all over my knees, legs. And then I had a, they did a drive by with a van and I got a AK 47 ricochet into my left leg. Oh, wow. So, jeez. and I got through 30 feet from the vehicle when the vehicle flipped. Wow. Um, and I don't know how, I guess it wasn't his day, but a kid was in the back with me, this kid in Friesenberg, he was up on air guard. Mm -hmm. Um, and when the truck flipped up in the air, mm -hmm. he was locked in with a, with a D-ring and a, a cargo strap. And he rode the truck in and it landed on top of him and he didn't get a scratch. Just busted his eardrums. Wow. Um, now, Sergeant Reed, the guy that was driving because he was on the side I was on, mm -hmm. he got really messed up, but mainly in his legs. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I got through about 30 feet, um, separated my left shoulder from my clavicle, all that. Man, I couldn't use my arm. Uh, when I was at, when I got to uh, uh, Germany, the doctors told me they were going to take my right eye. Ooh, and, wow. and fortunately, they called a doctor at Walter Reed and he said, hey, get him on the first plane over here and let me look at it first. So I got to Walter Reed and he told me, he's like, all your shit's jacked up, but he's like, your eye is the one we really got to worry about. He's like, everything else looks real bad. He's like, but if we don't do something with that eye, you're going to lose it. Yeah. So, um so yeah, he kept me there. He's an ocular tra ocular trauma specialist, and uh, just I don't know what he did, but stabilized my eye because I have I still have a piece of shrapnel behind my retina. Mm, wow. So so um, but yeah, I have shrapnel everywhere, and Jeez. and you know I was told all my time, you know, want to read everything. I was going to get med boarded and all this, and I was like, like I am, <laughs> and uh, I do remember getting there the. Uh, <laughs> My wife and daughters were coming from, from North Carolina to go there. And uh, the nurse told me that my family had just arrived. It was about, I guess, maybe half a day after I got to Walter Reed or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and they were like, yeah, your family's coming. So I stood up out of bed. And they were like, you got to lay down because I had, like, open wounds everywhere. And I was like, yeah. I was like, my little girls are not going to see me laying in a hospital bed. So, yeah, and then... um. You know, I got, I stayed there, had, you know, all my, I had a bunch of surgeries and then on my hip and my face, a lot of surgeries on my face. And then, um, well, actually what was funny is this was before WTB and all like, right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the next morning I wake up in the bed, you know, I'm all drugged up and this Pogue staff sergeant, I got to say it cause he was shows up. And he's like, he's like, hey, uh, Sergeant, you're going to have to report to me, you know, once you get out of here every day, blah, blah. And I was like, who the hell are you? And he's like, I'm your platoon sergeant. And I was like, like, you're my platoon sergeant. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm a god platoon sergeant, you know, so I lost my. Shit. 
I was like, I was like, you ever been in forty? You're, you've been in charge of a forty-two man airborne infantry platoon. He's like, no. I was like, well, you ain't my platoon sergeant, you know. Mm-hmm. So then the captain came in and talked to me, and I told her that there was no way I was going to report to anybody. Yeah. So she dealt with that, um, and then she eventually, I eventually um, talked them into working to get me back to Bragg. So it took me till I was in Walter Reed, I guess, for almost two months. Yeah. And then, I got him to send me back down, and I got a doctor out at UNC at Chapel Hill, and I had to see him for, like, forever for my eye. And and when I got out of the hospital, Walter Reed, I had an open wound in my hip that was huge, so my wife literally had to, like, pack my wounds every day. And 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 I'm still with her. She's, like, one of the best things that ever happened to me, man. 26 years of marriage, I'm still together. Yeah. And she's she's probably the only thing on this earth I'm scared of. Yeah. You know? but, <laughs> but, yeah, she's, uh, she's awesome, man, and. And I remember when I fought the med board and told him that I'm I'm staying, you know, I'm not going. Yeah. Um, she told me she's like, I'm giving you 20 years and that's it. And I was like, okay. And then you know, 25 years later. So, oh so. wow. But yeah, um, it was uh, but like you said, you know, the coming home part, I didn't get that the first time. Uh, the second time for me, you know, coming home was like, it was so good because my kids got to see. You know, us coming home with the American flags and everybody right. getting off the, the birds and all. And, and uh, you know, and I mean, truthfully, man, when we came back, our second deployment, you know, I felt like we accomplished something because the elections happened. Yeah. And we were, we were, you know, one of the main reasons that it did go off without a hitch. And, uh, yeah, man, I mean, it was just. Uh, that improves morale massively. Yeah. Yeah, it was just, you know, it was a good feeling knowing that we went and did our jobs. And we did it well, and we made it home. And, uh, you know, like I've had people over the years ask me, you know, about being wounded and all that. I don't give a about none of that. The only thing I cared about was being a soldier, you know. And I knew that that's part of the gig. If right. it happens, it happens. Yeah. But I will tell you this. When we deployed the second time, I really, I was, I had to get waivers and everything to deploy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember I told, he's uh, he was one of my squad leaders, this guy named Doyle. I was like. I said, hey, man, I was like, uh, if I punk out, punch me in the face. Excuse my language. <laughs> He's like, what do you mean, Sergeant Mac? I was like, dude, I don't, everybody says you like freak out. I don't know if I'm going to have, I don't know what I'm going to do if I get, you know, explosions or shot at yeah, yeah, after yeah. being wounded. I didn't know. Nothing happened in Baghdad. And then when we got to Missoula, our first day in sector, we were in a, you know, three, four hour firefight. I remember when it was all over, we had moved into this little, uh, complex and Doyle come put his hand on my shoulder he's like yeah I think you're good Sark because we we jacked some <laughs> up I was like yeah I guess I am yeah you know? that's awesome but yeah you don't know until you you know because of the trauma you know right but wow um okay so you know but coming back from that second deployment did you you know and the, and the deployment before that did you notice your mentality changed at all did you have hang-ups you know did you have certain things that we won't use that word triggered because i hate yeah. that word no um but you know like did you notice things that like uh bothered you you know when you when you came back from that second well, appointment well what it what i noticed man is i had i had no no patience anymore you know like mm, yeah um uh, anything could set me off it's hard uh, when you have kids too. yeah yeah and and you know it's there's n- it's not triggers or any of that that it's just uh it's just, you know, you you were, you know, one a guy told me, he said it best. He's like, the whole time you're over there, you're living at 100. Yeah. And he's like, when you come back, they expect you to go back down to like 20. 
Oh yeah. So, but your mind can't do that. So, and then you're expecting everything to move every day like it did in combat, and it don't. And that's a that's a big problem that a lot of guys have when they get back is trying to just mellow out, take that little bit of time, and then kind of smooth back into the family life and back into everything. And right. Um, but the tolerance for BS is like was like terrible. And um, now what 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 was good is. You know, we were moving and hopping and popping so much as you didn't really have time to contemplate, you know, what the last appointment was because you're thinking about the next. Right. You know? Yeah. So. Well, that's good. Yeah, probably having, like, a a mission set when you get back, right? Like, yeah. something to look forward to. I think yeah. it's just a little different. Like, you know, that, that question was probably a little bit preemptive, in fact, in that, you know, you weren't getting out of the military, so you still had things to look forward to. I think the real big wall that a lot of guys hit is when they get out of the military period and that's yeah. a really tough one but we'll, we'll get into that later so you can get back how long before the third deployment well i had uh let's see so i got back in 05 and uh my third deployment uh i deployed in it was in 07 i don't remember exactly what month um but i just made the uh, master sergeant list and then i got promoted to master sergeant and uh took a company over in Afghanistan and I got moved to fourth brigade 82nd. Wow. That's cool. Did you feel, uh, what's that sense of responsibility like when you're doing that? (laughs) You know, it was, it was super cool when I made the eight list, you know, and you know, I was, I was pretty young guy making it. And then, uh, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm excited. You know, I'm getting a company. I'm going to combat with a company, you know, and then, and then when I actually got on the bird to go over there, because they were already deployed, I deployed late because I moved over to Fort Brigade. Is uh, you know, I was like, "Holy man!" It really set in. I was like, "I'm gonna be the first sergeant of these guys over here. I'm responsible <laughs> for a hundred and some guys." And That's I a said, lot of responsibility. "And you know, in in my mind, the odds of losing somebody were much greater." Mm-hmm. You know, so it was a, it was a uh, stressful time getting ready. You know, getting my mind right, getting over there. But once I got there, you know, I. I integrated into the company, and then I just, I told myself, just like I was always taught and by my good first sergeants, you know, I'm not going to be a nice guy. I'm yeah. not going to be their freaking friend. I'm going to be their first sergeant. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, that's what I was. Uh, fortunately, I caught the tail end of the deployment, so five, six months of it. Okay. Um, and uh, it was, uh, you know, we had some stuff happen, but. It was pretty quiet because most of it was wintertime. Um, right. So. Where were you guys at? Uh, in uh, Ghazni, Wardak province. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we were there. And what was the, the difference in the dynamics between Iraq and Afghanistan for you? What did you notice the most? All the uh, when, I, when I went to Afghanistan the first time, the op tempo was so much slower um, right. at that time. And I think it was because, you know, uh, it hadn't it just hadn't kicked up as much because Iraq was still especially during the surge mm-hmm. um so it was it was slower and it was different terrain and a much different fight yeah um you know so i put iraq out of my head i was like you know I did, iraq doesn't matter we're in afghanistan it's a totally different place different enemy we got to figure it out you yeah know, so that's awesome yeah what is it like what is your philosophy on leadership going into something like that like how do you view yourself? How did you view yourself at the time? Well, I mean, I, I never really thought about, like, viewing myself. But what I did do was I focused on, you know, if it makes sense to you, being seen. Um, 
if you're out there with the guys and the guys see you, then they're probably going to follow you. Right. Um, now, sometimes they don't want to see you because they're like, that ass coming up here again, he's going to – because you're going to scuff them up for something. Right. But, um, but the leadership part of it, man, is in, – in my mind was – you know, it was all about I didn't care what was going on in the company before I got there. But for me, it was all about discipline and, uh, and you know, being a leader and not being a friend. And yeah. that's hard for a lot of guys, especially during that time, to deal with because the guys are going through so much. They're going to deployments back to back to back. So a lot of times, a lot of those leaders would think they were taking care of guys by taking care of them. Right. And uh, at the end of the day, you're really not. You're hurting them in the long run. So. Yeah, like, one of the first things I did was I caught a dude um, messing up on a guard tower. Mm -hmm. So as soon as he got off guard, I made him write a – actually, that was the second guy. I made him write a 5,000-word uh, essay on uh, duties and responsibility mm. and, and number every word. <laughs> and then uh, before that – no, I'm sorry. Actually, yeah, when we were – no, it was when we were redeploying. Uh, we were at uh, um, Salerno, and one of my medics – um, came in and he was a newer guy and I didn't I didn't recognize him and then I saw him and he had a name tag on it that said McLovin uh, and I said come here he's a Roger first and I was like I know your name ain't McLovin I know everybody's name in this company <laughs> and he was like uh, it was a name tag I had made so yeah I I, I scuffed him as platoon sergeant and his squad leader up pretty damn good it was. Uh, <laughs> They had some pain for a couple of days. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure. But then after that, I called the kid McLovin for the next couple of years. So. <laughs> but uh, he was a good kid. Yeah. You yeah. know, he was just being funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, you get back from the third deployment, you come home. Yeah. And then how soon after that was the fourth? A year later. A year later, okay. Yeah. So where were you headed that this time? Well, this time, uh, at first... Uh, so the brigade had got a uh, um we were we were uh on the patch chart to go be an advisor and assist brigade in RC South. Um and as we got closer to the deployment, um our battalion, you know, was still doing advise and assist, but they needed to send one company down to Helmand and Lashkar Gah and Nawa with the Marines and the Brits, um, because of the fighting going on down there. Mm -hmm. And uh they selected, you know, my company. Uh, as we were always the main effort for the battalion, like we did, you know, I had the best commander in the damn battalion. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we got, so our mission for the brigade and battalion was advise and assist, but BCO's mission was actually, we went down as a, uh, you know, basically a combat multiplier for the Brits and the Marines. Okay. Um, now we did do some advising as far as like with the Afghan police and the, uh, border patrol and stuff. We took them out on patrols missions and stuff like that. Did a lot of big clearance ops. Right. How was that? It was, I mean, they were trying. Yeah. You know, but it was, it was early on, you know, they had the, uh, the A&A academies up and running and all that stuff, but you know how that goes. Right. Train them. And then the next thing you know, you go to a checkpoint and they're all asleep and doing whatever. So <laughs> and we're not going to talk about all the stuff they do. Yeah. 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 I'm sure. <laughs> but, uh, this would quickly become an X-rated podcast. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, we were down, you know, we were in Hellman, uh, and, uh, you know, we, we did a little shoot 'em up with the Brits and the Marines. I had a platoon uh, with the uh, Marines down in Nawa. I want to say it was it was either 3-6 or 2-6 uh, for the Marines. And then um, we were at we were Gah with the uh, Brits, and and uh, we conducted a lot of operations out there. One of our 
Um, first couple of patrols, I had a platoon got ambushed on Highway One, mm-hmm. and the platoon did a textbook react to contact and took out the bad guys. And then there was all kind of radio tra- chatter that the commandos were in town and they needed to stay off the highway and all that stuff, you know. Yeah. So, but uh, wow. Yeah, that's cool. But yeah, while we we're down there, um, it was like. Second week of November, I remember my battalion commander and Sergeant Major had drove down from Kandahar, uh, and it was about 120K. And they got to us, and then the commander pulled uh, pulled me and my, my company commander off to the side and said, hey, guys, we got battle space. And I was like, that's cool. And he's like, yeah, we're moving into the Argandav River Valley up in Kandahar. And I was like, okay, that place is... Mm-hmm. Um, and then... uh he explained to us. Were you more worried about that area than Hellman? Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and he was like, he, you know, he explained this to us that the unit that was there before us. I'm not going to say who they are because you know we all talk mess about the unit before us. And right. All that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not going to say anything because I wasn't in their fight. I was just in my fight. Right. You know? Yeah. But um, they pulled them out after a couple months because they had taken so many casualties. Jeez. And uh, so. We were going down, uh, we were going to Ka- up to Kandahar to uh, take the mission to clear the Argandab and control it and um, keep the uh, Taliban from getting into Kandahar City. And a battalion commander told told me and the CO right there on the spot, he's like, hey, guys, y'all know y'all are the main effort. You're going to be smack dab in the middle of the valley when we do the clearance operation, and you're going to stay there. Wow. And he's like, you're going to take casualties, and yeah. it's going to be tough. And uh and, you know, we're talking to him, and he, he, you know, I never forget. He told me, he looked me in the eye, and he's like, I would send another company in, but they're not ready. Yeah. He's like, you guys are. And, um, and you know, I get it now. You know, the best the best units get the hardest the hardest missions. Yeah, as it should be. And it wasn't that we were better than the other guys. We just, you know, I had, our, our company had just come together. You know, yeah, like yeah. a lot of the guys were still there from the first appointment. And, um, good chemistry, good yeah. discipline. Real good platoon sergeants. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it worked out. Um, we went into the valley on December 19th of uh, 09, and and little did we know, you know, I gave guys a go-to-war speech and all that, you know, like, excuse my language, like first sergeants do all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and at the end of that deployment, all the guys told me that was the first time in their career that the go-to-war speech actually came true. <laughs> um, wow. But I can tell you, man, from – and I did another deployment after that one, but that deployment still haunts me, man. It was, uh, it was truly hell on earth. Like really? it was, it was, it was the hardest thing, you know, for me as a, as a senior guy pushing my guys through this every day. And, you know, they're seeing their buddies get jacked up from booby traps and all this. And you're walking in all these, this AO that looks like freaking Vietnam mm-hmm. and, your buddy gets blown up right beside you and there's no bad guy to kill, mm, you know? Yeah. And yet your mission is not in there to kill bad guys. Your mission is in there to dominate the terrain, close it out and keep anybody from coming in. Right. So you're almost in a defensive maneuver position. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the problem is, is the bad guys are already there. Right. You know, they live in the valley. Yeah. Um, and they know the valley. So you're playing defense on offense. Yeah. Yep, wow. Defense on offense. Yeah. And, and the only way to dominate that fight is you have to constantly, constantly be out in the battle space. Yeah. You can't sit on a cop. You can't sit in the defense. Right. You got to be on the offense, but while you're on the offense, you got to be in the defense. Yeah. You know? So it's, uh, 
and you know that fight was so um you know just the mental aspect of it was just it was crazy man i mean like i said we went in on december 19th uh conducted a clearance operation uh i had to find a place to set up a combat outpost and the the only place i could find was a a uh radish field wow and it had two walls and then two orchards mm. And it was just raining nasty. And I remember uh, the battalion commander was out there because we did the big clearance op. We actually didn't face any resistance going in. Mm, typical we, Taliban yeah, effort. Yeah. And, it was, and it was winter, so the, the greenery wasn't there. So, you know, they knew we could see them too. Right. But, um, yeah, the battalion commander, you know, told me, all right, this is where you're going to set it up? I was like, Roger, sir. I was like, what kind of assets am I going to get in here? And at that time, uh, like – no kind of air resupply or anything would fly in the valley because it was too dangerous because wow. they would get shot down. Yeah. So um, we had one lock in and out, and for those of you listening that don't know what a lock is, is a line of communi- communication, basically a road. Hmm. But we had one road in and out. It was tiny. You couldn't get a PLS or anything on it um, into the valley. So I told the commander that day, I was like, uh, well, sir, the only way I'm going to get my equipment in here to set up a combat outpost is if you let me use Humvees. Mm. And they had, you know, because the first part of the deployment, the battalion had Humvees, and then that was that was when they got outlawed in country where you couldn't use them anymore because they were just getting obliterated. Right, yeah. Because they started getting Matvees. And uh, yeah. so they made an exception for me. So me and my guys for about... What do you call them, like coffins on wheels? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but for about 72 hours, we were making... Gacks with Humvees and trailers bringing all our in from Walton. Jeez. And uh, I remember I had uh, my buddy was the FSC first sergeant. And I ran into his hooch in uh, Walton. I was like, hey, man, these two big 60K generators I got, can your, uh, your wrecker pick them up? And he's like, yeah, why? I was like, well, I need you to put them on a trailer. He's like, dude, what kind of trailer? I was like, the Humvee trailers. He's like, those things can't go on a Humvee trailer. I was like, yeah, I know, and I can't drive a Humvee right now either, but that's happening. <laughs> you know, so so he put them, he, you know, they put them on the trailers for us. We carried, we we drove them in there best we could without flipping them over, and uh, we pulled into the uh, to the radish field with them, and wherever they sunk in the mud, that's where they stayed the whole deployment. Wow. And we just built around that. And, uh, yeah, our first 96 hours, man, my guys might have got, might have got an hour of sleep a night. Wow. Um, and, and, like, the third or fourth day, they were all feeling sorry for themselves. So, like, 4 o'clock in the morning, I'll never forget. And these guys told the story when we did our, our reunion. <laughs> I pulled the whole company in because we were all together at that point, And I just went ballistic, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, like, I told them, I was, like, I was like, nobody cares about your feelings right now. I don't care that you're tired. Bad guy out there don't care that you're tired. But I was like, i tell you what, a month from now, after you've been tr- b- patrolling your butt off every day, mm-hmm. you're going to want to have somewhere to come back to and be secure. Yeah. So if we don't build it now, we ain't going to build it. Right. So they uh, they busted their asses, you know, and made it happen. I mean, man, we we carried in our own HESCOs, everything, put them up, had them up for three three months with no dirt in them. Wow. Because we couldn't get any kind of assets back there because it was too dangerous. Jeez. And um, Yeah, it was just, it was it was crazy, man. And, um, you know, I, I took my first casualty the day after christmas wow um, it was a, i had a squad hit uh, i had one one kid was kia and then um one was an amputee and then uh two others were wounded wow yeah what's the feeling like that in leadership when that 
goes down and that happens? It's just, uh, you know, you're, you're, you know, everything just sinks to the bottom of your stomach. And then, you know, on that deployment, I tell you, as a first sergeant, being the guy that had to show up on the X and make all the guys that are there calm down and do their freaking jobs. And, and you know, it's not that they weren't, but you know how it is, man. You take casualties, it's mass confusion, everybody's freaking out. So all I constantly told myself was I got to be the dude that keeps these kids, you know, keeps their head in the game. Right. And uh, so, yeah, I got out there. On a, well, actually, when that when that happened, uh, myself and, and the platoon sergeant of that platoon, first platoon, because uh, they were out with a squad and their PL checking out this grape orchard we wanted to check out. He was actually showing me some of the guard positions because he was working the guard outside for me. And uh, while we were out there, we saw the explosion and heard it. And we knew it was him, so we busted ass and got into the talk. And then we heard it all, and we got out there. And, uh, you know, we got the guys evac'd. We had the uh, pararescue guys come in and get them, Pedro. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I uh, the squad leader that was on the ground, he's he's dead now himself. But uh, he, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, we get all the guys out of there. We get Johnston's body out of there. And um, I'm looking for him. And I asked his PL, I'm like, where the hell is the squad leader? He's like, well, he's over by a tree, first sergeant. And he pointed out where he was at, and I went over there. And I looked at him, and he was crying. Mm-hmm. Grabbed him by the chin strap, and I pulled his helmet to mine and said, look, man. I said, I, I said, there's no time for that right now. Yeah. I said, I said, your boys are over there. You're going to get your ass up, and you're going to get them to pull in security and do what the hell they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I said, you got to remember, man, what do I always tell you? This is a freaking roller coaster ride. You don't get off from it till it's finished. Yeah. I was like, if you're if you're at Six Flags, are you gonna step off a roller coaster mid midway through? Yeah. No. No. Yeah. So I told him, there's no time for that on the X. And, yeah. Uh, and then you know, we got him back that night. We brought another element out to secure the AO so we could do the SSC the next morning. And uh, that night when we got them back to the cop, he came and talked to me and he wanted to tell me that he was sorry he let me down. Yeah. And I told him, I was like, I was like, don't be sorry for shit, man. I said, all I want to see is that you're going to get out there and do your job. Right. Which he did. He wound up being, you know, one of my best squad leaders. He was just a young guy and never, you know. And the kid that got killed was, you know, a real good friend of his. Yeah. Then next thing you know, he's a squad leader, you know. So it's yeah, it's hard, man. And and um and then to be to be the guy that's out there with him, the old guy that puts a boot in there and actually you know they think he has no feelings is hard you know yeah yeah um, she's just taking from that old model of 82nd soldier you know yeah from world war ii you, you, there's no time for that man no there's not you gotta move you know e- even in death the 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 ultimate goal still has to be remain the mission yeah and it's easier said than done it is and you know I, I think in some ways you know i think about this often we got some hard chargers nowadays of course but it's nobody's fault, but no. society's just not built the way that it was. No. You had a lot of people experiencing back then a lot of death before they even got overseas. Yeah. So, you know, and then life was just hard. The Great Depression, they, like, in a way, carved out the perfect warrior. That's one of the things about living in a very comfortable society, you know, is even as bad as you can have it over here, it's nothing compared nothing to Nothing compared to that, there. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's probably a lot of what you're doing is having to give guys a wake-up call. Yeah. Um, I can tell you, man, and if there's any guys out there listening right now that are still in, mm-hmm. you know, 
You got to, what I tell guys all the time still is leadership is a lonely place. If you're doing your job, you got to remember if you're doing your job, you're not anybody's friend. Yeah. And that's hard for a lot of guys to fathom. And like I said, when you think you're taking care of guys, because first sergeant says, Hey, make sure you're wearing your uniform, right? And doing all that. And then when he leaves, you let him do whatever. Yeah. What does that tell those guys? Yeah. You don't respect the chain of command. Yeah, and it, it's okay to not to not follow instructions. Right, exactly. And then you next thing you know, that kid's on a guard tower somewhere or whatever, he falls asleep or he takes yeah. his helmet off and he gets shot in the head. You know, everything that everything that you do in the military you do for a reason. Just just you don't understand it until you start moving up and the blinders come off. Yeah, yeah. I, I think about that often with um basic training, you know. Being in Knox and like I think one of my shirt rolls was like a quarter of a centimeter off once. Yeah. And like drill sergeant came over and like you know rolled it and checked it. Yeah. And just you know proceeded to scream at me for like fifteen minutes about the shirt. And then I, I you know in the moment I was seventeen years old and I was just like oh my gosh. But then I remember afterwards immediately thinking kind of what my dad had talked about before you know or as like you know attention to detail and they yep. always you know on the way up on a push-up attention to detail yep. and then on the way down teamwork is key you know yep. that that was always a something that was they were teaching us yeah one one round not in that magazine yeah gets your buddy killed yeah but see but at the time you don't understand <laughs> oh, that no, because it's you're insanity. Just, you just you just think this guy's a total a-hole <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know he's just, just doing it for guy. fun you know, like like I have guys that ask me, you know, what's the best thing about being retired? Yeah. And truly the best thing about being retired is not having to be in 247. <laughs> I mean, really. Cuz it's tiring if you're doing your job right. Yeah. It's tiring. And I'm not saying, you know, you're you're out there just yelling at your guys and willy-nilly, but as a senior leader or any kind of leader, you got to be the guy that they they both fear and respect. Right. You know, and it and but you also it's a it's a slippery slope because you also have to figure out how to be approachable, right? Um, and and you know what that that comes from, you know if you are hard, but you are fair, yeah. And they know that no matter what you got their back, then they will approach you if they have an issue. They'll That's talk true. to you, you know. They'll want to pick your brain, you mm-hmm. know. And and also if you catch one of them doing something dumb, scuff them up. See them an hour later. Say, hey, bud, how's it going? Yeah. And they'll look at you like you're crazy. Yeah. But you don't forgot about what just happened. Right, you know? right. Because they fixed the deficiency. Yeah. Because it's not personal. <laughs> it's business. Yeah, it's business. Know? It's got to happen. You're a soldier. Your job is to, in the end, you know, your job is to kill. And if you're yeah. not doing it effectively, you got to be corrected. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, uh, I still guys, I have guys ask me this all the time, too. You know what truly prepares you for combat? What? Garrison. Yeah. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Yeah. Garrison is where discipline comes in, attention to detail, mm-hmm. getting yourself in shape, doing all those things that totally suck. Because mm-hmm. what do we all want to do? Go out to the field and shoot guns and do all this. Yeah, of course. But, you know, if you're not disciplined, then you can't go out to the field and do all that other stuff the right way. Right. Um, so discipline is key, man. And, and Garrison, especially back in Spitshine days and all that oh, stuff, yeah. Garrison really sucked. Yeah, I'm sure. But yeah, it it truly got you ready for combat though because you understood that if something had to be done, it had to be done done right, done the first time and knock it out and don't don't BS about it, you know, of just course. move out. And if somebody tells you to go stand over there and they don't say anything else, you just stand over there. Yeah. Follow instructions. Yep. 
So, you know, we were talking about this third deployment. I'm sure it didn't just all go hunky-dory from there. No, it got worse and worse. Yeah. Um, Tell us about that. Yeah, it was just, um, you know, we our mission, like I said, we had to we had to control that valley. We had to clear all the villages in it, and uh, basically, what we had what we did was we moved from where we were at, and we built three other combat outposts within the valley. Mm-hmm. But believe it or not, our AO was only about um, a ten square mile. Um, it was pretty small. Yeah, we you know uh, after after that. We started finding IEDs. We were figuring out TTPs. Um, and when, when I say IEDs, it was booby traps, uh, PMN mines, uh, attached to 25-pound jugs of HME, stuff like that. Jeez. Trip wires through, the, uh, through um, wheat fields, trip wires in the orchards, uh, Golly. anti-tampering devices inside collats. I mean, it was just anything you could think of, yeah. they would do. Yeah. Um, and their whole goal was, you know, it wasn't, they weren't even trying to really kill us. They were trying to fix us so they could have freedom of movement. Right. They were trying to keep us from patrolling through that valley so they could just walk out and do what they want. Right. Um, but we couldn't let that happen. So we had to constantly stay out and, um, you know, we had to adjust our TTPs all the time. Like, you know, for example, uh, infantry squad, when they're out in the open, they use a wedge formation, right? Right. Spread out, everything like that. Yeah. Well, wedge formation didn't make sense for us, so we walked in a file out in the open. Mm. You know, and it was weird going against everything that you're taught, but at the same time, you have to adapt and you got to figure out what works. Right. Um, it's just... Um, and that wedge, and the, and, the, and the the principle behind that file formation, right, because there's so many booby traps and IED yeah. possibilities that you want to always stay in the other guy's yep. footsteps. Stay in the footsteps, and, you know, the guy up front's clearing, and if something does happen, hopefully it's just one guy instead of four. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, you do that, uh, you're, like I said, you're patrolling every day. You know, the guy's... You know, we'd have to explain to them, too, you know, because they were just smoke, man. You know, squads would do two or three patrols a day. Um, and and these are foot patrols through a crappy-ass valley where you're crossing eight, ten-foot walls, walking through four-foot canals. Yeah. Um, because you can't take the path of least resistance. You can't take trails or anything like that because you're going to get blown up. Right. Um, but, you know, what we had to make guys understand is the reason we got to stay out is because we have to understand – our area we have to dominate it but we also have to understand the patterns of life yeah because if one thing's out of place and you know that ao mm. you're gonna know that's out of place right but where does that come from attention to detail oh yeah absolutely you know those um, things small things back in yeah. garrison but also you know we had to we really you know we worked hard to make our guys understand that no idea was a dumb idea you know every yeah. idea we would take into account because yeah. I mean, I had one of my team leaders come up to me one day. He's like, hey, first sergeant, look what I got in the mail. I'm like, what the hell? It was a little Spider-Man fishing pole that you can uh, fold. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what you going to do with that? He had a one-ounce seeker on it. He's like, tripwires, first sergeant. Mm. I was like, holy but I didn't even think about that. So I was like, you are authorized to carry that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but it's just dudes thinking outside the box, you know? Like, we found on that deployment – uh, the CO and I were just together a couple months ago again, and we were talking about it. But we found uh, 96 IEDs. Jeez. And we had 26, no, 20, 26 or 29 strikes wow. against us. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. 
yeah, it was it was just crazy. And uh, you know, the first couple times we got hit, you know, we just we didn't really understand the TTPs, and we, and you know, if you look back around 2009, there was no before you deployed doing dismounted IED training and booby traps and all that stuff. Right. It didn't exist. Now it does. But yeah. um so we had to figure it out as we went and I had never even heard of a PM in mine, you know? Mm-hmm. Um but uh explain that for people who don't understand So it's that. uh it's their legacy uh they're basically um anti personnel mines and they're designed kinda like it's just a kinda like a toe popper. It's designed to like take off a foot. Okay. If there's a PM in mine, you're not going to pick it up with a metal detector. It's all plastic. Mm. Um, and what they would do was they would use those as the initiation device. And they would have a, you know, 10 meter or so uh, deck cord attached to it to a a big vegetable ghee jug of HME, oh, wow. homemade explosive, you know, ammonium, nit- ammonium nitrate. Right. So whoever stepped on the PM in mine was either going to lose their foot, toe, something like that. But then one of the guys behind them, 10 meters back, was going to get killed. Wow. You know, and that's the way they designed it. And uh, it was like, you know, every day um, we were finding them. Mm-hmm. You know, we were, and it wasn't like some, you know, you're walking across an open area and there's this obvious IED. It mm-hmm. was, holy, this, some don't feel right. Yeah. You know? um, like, for instance, those guys were so good that I had a guy got hit really bad. Um, he took, he took the route he could to the highest point in the wall mm-hmm. and still stepped on the IED at the wall. Jeez. And we were like, how the did they know they were going to cross there? Yeah. Well, when we go back and we do the SSE, the bad guys had actually taken limbs and leaves and stuff like that and just made them look natural, but spread them around to where it naturally just channelized those guys into that spot. Golly. Wow. But I was thinking, you know, that's just, that's ingenuity at its finest, you know, yeah. and that's knowing how the human mind thinks because subconsciously you think you're doing the right thing because you're going to this AO, you're taking the tall spot in the wall. There can't be nothing there. Wow. But yet there's these little things around that just kind of funnel you in without you even knowing it. Jeez. You know? Wow. But that's the kind of stuff we faced every day. And on that deployment, you know, I, uh, I had, I'd seen a lot of stuff on all my deployments and a lot of back, but, yeah. you know, there's nothing like just, you know, it seems like every other day, you know, you're evacing somebody or you're holding their hand, telling them they're going to make it when they're missing limbs and all this, you know, it just, it haunted us, man. And then, you know, it still does. But the one thing that those guys from BCO know, and we did that big reunion a couple months ago. Mm-hmm is they know that they did something that most people couldn't have accomplished. Yeah. And it was due to them being a team and, you know, because even in the Army, people can quit. Oh, absolutely. You know, people yeah. people think that's not a thing, but yeah. if you say you're not going on patrol, I can't put a gun to your head and make you go patrol. Right. You know, I can make sure you get in trouble and lose rank and like that, but I can't physically make you go. And they're... And you know as well as I do, there are people that have quit over there. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it happened even in World War Two. Yeah. And they'll talk about guys crying, sitting and crying on yeah. the beach, you know? And, you know, and I, I, you know, and we had in our battalion, there were guys that quit in other companies, but not in mine. And the reason was is because all those guys, you know, they were just, they were there for each other. I remember him telling me, this was like May or so, I was talking to a bunch of guys, I'm like, yeah, you know, we're figuring this 
thought, man, we're finding them. We're going to, you know, <laughs> the guys are like, hey, first sergeant, ain't no big deal, you know. At least we know as long as you guys can stop the bleeding, we're going to be okay and we're going to be out of here. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know, so. That million-dollar wound. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking for that one. <laughs> like I had one so kid. you know the deployment's bad. <laughs> yeah, you know, like. One kid loses his leg, and I see him at the hospital, and he's like, hey, at least I'm not in that damn valley anymore, you know? Wow. But he's just being, you know, but. Yeah, that's that bad, though. Yeah. It's tough. Like, we conducted a big operation into the uh, IED maker's uh, village, and uh, one night, man, we took, uh, we had one KIA, I think six casualties, but all of them were serious. Yeah. So, you know, and that was a company operation, but real well, it was a company minus because we had one platoon that was at one of their cops. But each platoon had taken a couple casualties, so we were pretty much combat ineffective. Jeez. So we had to fall back, and yeah. I've never done that on any kind of deployment. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, that night, for the first time in my military career, I felt defeated. Yeah. Because we had all those guys got hit, and we didn't, we didn't make it into that village yeah so wow i remember the ceo and i were there i lost my best squad leader in the company that day and that was a real hard day and uh that night we were talking and we both said we got to go back and i was like yes sir and i was like let's get some aircraft and let's let's air assault inside that so they can't stop us from getting in yeah and it took us about a month but we finally got the aircraft and uh we patrolled out to five walton and got on the aircraft and went in and we cleared from the river in where they couldn't blow us up yeah and we took that place and we we set up a cop right in the middle of that village called cop brunkhorst after brunk wow i got got killed but yeah and the guys needed that you know they needed to get in there because i mean brunk was that kid that was a superstar you know yeah he was my go-to squad leader yeah next thing you know he's gone you know just wow you know and that night we had a couple amputees and um, and it was just from trying to walk in yeah. at night. It even got, you know, those deployments get so bad, you know, people don't realize what infantrymen do. And, you know, anybody could be on the outside looking in and say, oh, well, you know, somebody messed something up or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you're not there, man. You don't understand it. And and even for me, it was hard for me to, to even agree. But the CEO t- told me, he's like, first aren't we got to stop patrolling at night. Yeah. And I was like, sir, we can't, Yeah, you know? And he's like, yeah, but we can't see these things at night, which he was right, you know? Yeah. So what we did was, is we started setting up NAIs, overwatch positions, ambushes. So we'd take guys out and fill them during the day and put them up at night. And when we started doing that is when we really started catching the bad guys. Yeah. So we were finally getting some redemption. You yeah. Know? Sounds like a good leadership move from the yeah. officer there. Yeah. yeah. No, he was a great company commander. Yeah. And he and I, (laughs) and he and I, we both, we complimented each other so well because we kept each other grounded, you know? Yeah. You know, in my mind, I was so go, go, go. And so was he. But at the same time, you know, there were times where each one of us had to take, take a step back and tell the other one, Hey, hold up for a second. Let's figure this out. Yeah. That deployment, man. Uh, when, when I was on that deployment, I told myself after this, I'm not deploying again. I'm going to go take a TDA job and I'm done. Yeah. You know, because I couldn't handle writing letters to moms anymore. And I, I, you know, I couldn't handle how many times I had just been sitting there with a kid holding his hand, telling him everything's going to be okay when his legs freaking just blown off and yeah. there's body parts everywhere. And, and, uh, I forget my Sergeant Major, 
he told me, he's like, well, what if you make Star Major list? And I was like, well, that's not going to happen because I'm too young and it was my first look and I didn't even have a DA photo. Then mm-hmm. that deployment, he come back, hey, man, you made Star Major list. <laughs> I was like, jeez. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and, you know, when we got back from that, man, I was so tired. Yeah. Like, literally, I was, you know, and I don't know if it was just that deployment or a culmination of everything yeah. up to it. You know, I told myself when I got back, because I had time, is uh, I'm going to go to the Star Major Academy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a step back. I'm going to get my head right. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stay in the game. And then maybe from all this I've learned, maybe as a Star Major, I could do some good. You know, yeah. so, so yeah, I went, went to Sergeant Major Academy after the deployment and, uh, then I got sent down to Fort Polk and I was a brigade officer major for deployment. And mm-hmm. then, well, actually I was a battalion officer major when I got there and then they moved me up to brigade. I was a brigade ops for, uh, our 2013-14 deployment. Okay. And I competed to come back to Bragg and I got my first choice and came back as the 2508 CSM. Nice. The same battalion I was the first sergeant in. It was such a good feeling to come home. Yeah. Um, because I knew the history of the battalion and what they had been through. Yeah. It felt redeeming, and it felt like maybe I was giving a little, you know, I was giving something back. But, yeah, man, that Argonaut deployment, man, I mean, I could, you know, I'm not going to tell war stories all day and all. I mean, there's so many. Yeah. But I just would, I would tell anybody listening to this, I've got a lot of combat experience, and I've saw a lot of bad things, and I've done a lot of shoot 'em up Yeah. But until you're in a fight like that, that just literally, you're fighting a ghost, man. Yeah. But you still have to fight every day. Yeah. You know, that is harder than getting shot at 24 hours a day. It yeah. truly is because at least when you're getting shot at, you feel like you got a chance. Right. You know, but when the enemy's a ghost and when the greenery is so bad that you can't get ISR, you can't get anything, or they have little pockets that you can't get to. And anytime an aircraft comes in, it gets an RPG at it or whatever. It's, it's hell, man. Yeah. And, and it's not like in you're getting shot at all the time. It's like in i'm literally living in i'm living a yeah every day it's like groundhog day i'm going out there and i'm hoping nobody gets blown up we got to go through here we got to make sure this area is clear again and this and that and it's just it was rough man but we did it yeah i was so mad um on that deployment our last uh month month or so in country we got given a mission to go down to another town called uh Kukaran and clear it and set up another cop mm-hmm. and by that da- time i was down to 19 guys per platoon jeez because everybody else had been evac'd and everything oh else oh my gosh and uh i remember i told <laughs> told the battalion s3 me and the co we're like we don't have the combat power man how are you gonna how do you expect us to go do this mm-hmm. and uh the other unit that it came in the brigade said they wanted our company to do it because we knew the valley the best which i understood that but they were taking us out to go clear this this village and then they were taking a company from across the river and putting them in our cop and then like we said you know if that happens they're going to get hit we're going to go down there we're going to get hit and we just don't have the bodies yeah but anyway long story short we voiced our concerns but we still had to go do it yeah so um they augmented us with a, a platoon from one of the other companies and we went down and did it and we took a couple casualties but we accomplished the mission yet again and set up another cop, and we called that one Cop Karen for one of my other guys that was killed. You know, and that was the first time on that deployment that we actually had support because that village was close to the highway yeah. out of the valley. Yeah. You know, I could tell stories all day long, like, you know, 500-pound V-bit out there. Jeez. Um, 
you know, my squad leader that was on the ground that um that was Johnston's squad leader in March or April, he got hit by a suicide bomber, took two big ball bearings through his chest. Yeah, it was just it was crazy Jeez. out there, man. Wow. Yeah. Rough. Yeah. Rough and, environment. And and you know, like I told you, man, we did that operation resiliency thing mm-hmm. with the independence fund and DOD and the VA. And uh they got a hundred of my guys, man, we got them to show up and we all got together back in April. Yeah. Some of them have been out of the army, you know, 10 years now. Wow. It was so great that weekend, man, because a lot of those guys had some closure. Yeah. You know, because you think about it, man, you get out of the army as a young sergeant or or specialist, right? Right. That's where you're at right then. Mm-hmm. But fast, fast forward 10 years in the future when you're more mature and you understand things. Yeah. Then you're able to you know, comprehend why things were done and why you did what you did and why you had to do what you had to do. Right. And it was really good to have a lot of guys tell me and the CEO at the time we didn't really understand how important it was and why we were out there doing this, and now we do, you know, so. That's cool. Yeah. Since closure for you as well. Yeah, it was a lot. I had a lot of of, um, reservations about going because I was such a hard and I know a lot of the guys – I thought they hated me, yeah. um, but they really didn't. I had so many guys that weekend come hug me and tell me thank you, and they said if I wouldn't have been there, there would have been a lot worse. Yeah, and they know that. Wow. And, and you know, and that's that's why I tell guys, man, it's it ain't a popularity contest. It ain't about being their friend, man. Yeah. If you truly care about guys and you're out there with them every freaking day, and you bust your, you know, you're willing to do what they're gonna do, but you make sure that they do what they have to do to stay alive and be a soldier. Yeah. They're going to respect you. Yeah. You know, and that's that's a, it's a hard thing and especially when you move up to those senior positions because you can easily just sit back and not be out there every day and not, you know, my advice to anybody listening whether you're civilian, military, whatever, be seen. Mhm. You know, wh- whoever you're in charge of, let them know you're there. Yeah. You know, and that means a lot. That's cool. Yeah. You know, now obviously, you know, you you, you got out a few years back. Uh, you know, as command sergeant major, yeah, massive, you know, accomplishment. I mean, for those of you that don't understand, you know, that's that's as high as you can get on the enlisted side. You can't go, you can't go up from that, you know, unless you're, you know, command sergeant major of the army or whatever. But yeah. you know, you're not, you're not going any higher than that. That that's as good as it gets. Yeah. So, what was it like getting out? I mean, you know, you achieved this massive accomplishment right yeah. and you do 25 years yeah 25 years and then you're done yeah and uh well to tell you the truth at 25 years i really wasn't ready to get out no i mean i you wanted more huh well i mean i made the decision because i broke my neck and had to get a fusion done on my spine oh wow but uh Did you break your neck jumping oh <laughs> but i didn't know it until three jumps later oh geez you know how that goes yeah i don't but but uh <laughs> But i i had to get i had to get i had to get a fusion done and uh, my last six months in position, you know, I was told I couldn't jump anymore, mm. and uh, it was so horrifying, man, because I was always that guy out there doing everything with everybody. Yeah, and uh, I was told I couldn't jump anymore, and then I'm like, well, how the f- can I be their sergeant major? You know? Yeah. And I remember division sergeant major was like, hey, man, you got six months left in position. You're still their sergeant major, man. You're not going to be able to jump out of an airplane for six months. But hey, just make sure they're ready to jump out of airplanes. You know. Yeah. You know, it was it was it was so hard because after all I'd been through and all the I'd seen, 
my body had finally told me, hey, dude, enough's enough, you know? Enough's enough. And and I look back on it, and I remember, you know, doctors telling me when I was wounded and everything, you know, that aged me 10 years and all like. Yeah. But that's why I always focused to be in good shape and everything. And I was so torn, man. Like, I got offered a job to go work, you know, at Big Core and everything. And, uh, and I remember – I went with the I went and had lunch with the guy who was my brigade sergeant major in the Argandov and he was my battalion sergeant major when I was wounded. And I respect him so much, man. This guy named Sergeant Major Flowers, he's a legend. Mm-hmm. And we had lunch. And he, yeah, I'm not I'm not you. As soon as mm-hmm. we sit down, he's like, before you say anything, Mac, retire. <laughs> and that was exactly what he told me. And I was like, I was like, Sergeant Major, you're not even gonna hear me out. He's like, look, man. Yeah. He's like, you gotta understand something. You're the type of guy that if you stay in, you're just going to continue to hurt yourself. Right. And he's like, and you're at a point right now, if you stayed in, you wouldn't even have to hurt yourself, but you're going to. Yeah. And he's like, why? He's like, don't you want to be able to hold your grandbabies? Yeah. You know? He's like, you don't have anything to prove, man, and you don't have, you don't owe anybody anything. And that's hard for you to understand, you know, when you move, when you get to a point to where, you know, I kind of felt like I was at that point in my career to where I was just at, I was going to be that old guy that could be a liability, you know? Right, yeah. But- you know, I took his advice, and he was right, man. I mean, it was time. Yeah. Uh, now, I will say I wasn't mentally right for it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I I thought I was good. You know, I mean, the, the Argandab was hard. So I finished my time out. You know how most guys, when they're senior and they retire, they have like a year of doing jacking. You know, right. they just chill, right? Yeah. Wasn't my case. No. Because the brigade was deploying. Um, the new Sergeant Major came in, took my spot uh, uh-huh. for the deployment, and then the Brigade Sergeant Major and the Division Sergeant Major asked me to be the Brigade Sergeant Major rear mm. while they were gone. So I did it, obviously. Even yeah. Though, you know, I should have been focusing on retirement. Yeah. Yeah, I did that. And, uh, you know, I didn't really have time to think about stuff. And, um, you know, it was about a month or two before I was getting out. My wife and my best friend, Cavazos, they basically had to come to Jesus meeting with me and told me that I needed to go get help. Yeah. Um, both of them told wow. me, told me I had issues that I wasn't the same dude mm. and I was in a bad place, man. And I went and, you know, and I'm glad I'm able to talk about this now because yeah. it lets guys know that, Hey dude, even dudes like, even dudes like old heart, your Mac, <laughs> you know, needs help. But, uh, you it's know, massive, I, man, it really does help. Yeah. I went to see a psychologist. I made an appointment. Luckily she was great. I went in there and told her the first words out of my mouth was drink wrong with me. You know, my wife and my friends, I'm just stressed out about retiring, you know. Yeah. And she started talking to me, and you know, they know how to bring things out. And an hour into it, man, I was bawling my eyes out. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm all jacked up, you know. <laughs> and um, yeah. I went, and I, you know, I went through therapy. I did I did stuff that I needed to do to, to work out some of the guilt I had and the anger. I had a lot of anger. I could have... I could have easily quit it. Nobody's going to make you, especially a Sergeant Major, do anything. Like, nobody even knew I was going to see her, you know, except for my wife. And I didn't even tell her what it was about. But I mean, you're a Sergeant Major. Everybody's just trying to avoid you, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) But, you know, know, what made me, me, you know, it kind of took my blinders off because we always tell dudes to suck it up. We always tell dudes to drive on. We always tell them, we always tell them, you got to police yourself up. But at the same time, you know, I hadn't really policed myself up, yeah. you know, I never took time to fix myself. And I, and because of the mission and because of the job, mm-hmm. you don't really think about it, man. Cause you're so focused on the next operation. 
I think that's where it becomes a problem, you know, and you would know this better than I do, but I think that that's where it becomes a real issue is when that attitude of like suck it up, buttercup, you know, drive on, uh, attack the objective, there's no time to cry. I think where that gets jacked up is when you get back into garrison and we're still talking to guys like that, you know? Like, hey, man, I remember watching, like, a National Geographic special on 10th Group in Afghanistan, and, like, their commander was like, you know, they had a, one of their guys got killed on mission, they all had a toast, and they all, you know, you know, threw their, you know, water bottles up and toasted, and uh, they were like, all right, mission's, uh, mission's up for tomorrow, go check the board. Yeah. But he said, you know, they said, how, how can you be like that? You guys are, like, cheering, you know, you guys are, like, uh, toasting each other, and you're, you, you know, you're acting good. And he said, uh, he said, there's no time for tears. This is we're on mission. He goes, but when I get back, I'm gonna ball my eyes out. He yeah. Said, but now, you know, so so what what I learned from that is like this tough, you know, company commander, you know, young. I think he was like 26, you know, like company commander in tenth group, is like talking about something very real. Like in order to be the ultimate professional, we have to go out there and do our job. But when we get back, it's okay yeah. to admit you have those weaknesses and that you're suffering, that you're hurting. It's not even a weakness. It's it's just having feeling. But you know? it's not a weakness at all. But the other uh, side to that is when you when you get so used to it. Yeah. You know, you're so used to it, and you literally, like, I had forgot how to grieve, man. Yeah. Like, I literally had no clue how to grieve anybody. Wow. I mean, and, and when you think about it, you know, it's like, what does that even mean? Well, I'm, uh, what I'm telling you is, like, I didn't know how to grieve. You know, mm. I didn't know how to cry. I never cried. Wow. You know, it's like. Was uh, that a callousness that you'd built up? It was more of a it was more of a defense mechanism, man. Yeah. Because to tell you the truth, what I learned through my therapy is I wanted myself to feel the pain that the guys that got all jacked up and aren't still here to feel their pain that they they shouldn't have felt you know yeah and and uh what like my psychologist said is a lot of guys it's the same way we don't realize it but we're doing that yeah um, we're putting ourselves through this stuff because we have some kind of guilt even though none of it was our fault right but we rationalize it that way yeah and then you know i knew i was jacked up after that when i'd be like sitting in the living room watching tv and the next thing you know i'm tearing up <laughs> Yeah. And I'm literally the guy that people's like, that dude don't even have feelings. You know? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, like I, I try to tell guys now, you know, it's it's okay to grieve, man. It's okay. It's okay to, you know, face your feelings and face your demons. Yeah. But you don't have to do it alone. But the one thing you do have to do is you have to take the step on your own. Yeah. You know, because it takes guts to do that. Mm -hmm. And nobody's going to do it for you. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And just to let people know, I mean... The degree of toughness out there for me, you know, I'm, a, you know, I, I, I served for six years, but I could tell you guys like Mac, a guy like Mac, he would have scared the living daylights out of me and I would have literally made sure I was a sham expert, brother. <laughs> Let me tell <laughs> oh, you, son, yeah. I was an E4 Mafia leader. Yeah. Like, I would have given myself at least 10,000 meters between us and some foliage <laughs> yeah. and camouflage and, you know, like, yeah. you know, I, I knew how to get away. Uh, but you, I, you know, like, so I know your toughness level. I mean, I've seen it even in the past few days. I know what kind of sergeant major you are. And yeah. you're not, well, I mean, no sergeant major is really the one to mess with, but you're definitely not the one to mess uh, with. You know. And, and I get that feeling. Um, but let me tell you, I, I respect that you can talk about these things because it's so important. If I talk about it, guys are like, 
Well, yeah, Tim, we know you're a, you're a unicorn. That's how you. Yeah. Are. <laughs> yeah. That's how you are. But with you, it's like, dang, man, even him being able to admit that, like, that's yeah. strong. It took more guts to face it than it did to not face it. Yeah. Um, and it and you know, and it's in some ways, you know, it's easier for me because. I went from one deployment to the next, to the next, to the next. And my first deployment, I was a staff sergeant, so I was a more mature guy. And that's like I got asked to go speak at the uh, VO, the National VA DOD Suicide Conference uh, back in August, and um, they wanted me to talk about the burden of decision-making as a leader in combat. Mm-hmm. And I told them I didn't want to talk about that. What I wanted to talk about was the burden of making decisions as a young as a young kid in combat. You know, for me, all that stuff's really hard, and I was always a leader in combat, so... I have a lot of guilt up there and I have a lot of, a lot of pain, but in the guilt being not that anybody did anything wrong, the guilt being that I'm still here after all that and they're not, yeah. you know, and you don't realize you have that until you actually go through it and you, yeah. you think you're just pissed off or whatever. I talked to, you know, at that conference and I told him, you know, I was like, we're the best advocates for everybody else, but not ourselves. Yeah. And actually, who cued me in to remember to say that was uh, was Master Sergeant Leroy Petrie. Yeah. But I was talking. Leroy's a great one. Yes, he is. Yeah. He's an amazing, amazing soldier. When I think of examples and humility, that's, it, that is the one guy I think of. He should be the guy in there with the picture saying, yeah. be like this guy. Yeah. Encyclopedia, Truthfully. humility. Yeah. There you go. Right there. Yeah. But, you know, I, I talked to him, and, I, and what I wanted him to understand was, you know, as a leader in combat, you have an expectation that you're going to have to make calls and bad shit's going to happen sometimes. Yeah. Because it's combat. Yeah. And you know you're going to have to live with it. But what we don't teach our soldiers is, you know, we always teach them battle drills. Know, your, know, how, to be a, know how to be a rifleman. Know how to be this. Know how to be that. But when you take into, ta- into account tactical directives, rules of engagement, and everything else, and then all the just got to go through that kid's head before he makes a decision on the ground. And then if he does make a decision on the ground and something bad happens, even though it's no fault of his, he's got to live with that for the rest of his life. Rest of his life. And what are we, what do we do to help him live with that? Yeah. You know, what, what happens when that kid gets back from deployment and he decides to get out? Cause that deployment really sucked and everything else. Mm -hmm. We give him an award, shake his hand, give him a high five and say, peace out. Yeah. And then we're worried about filling the slot. Yeah. So like I told them, you know, what are we doing to make sure that they're able to deal with that, to know that, hey, man, you made a decision. And, you know, whether you shot the the car or not, and then it was a bomb and it blew people up, you were doing what you were supposed to do. Right. And you had to make that decision. Mm-hmm. But it's and, and then there's another piece to it, too, that I talked to them about. Imagine you're a SARM first class and you're three-time combat deployed veteran and your wife cheats on you or something like that. Yeah. And you go out and you you have a few drinks and the next thing you know you get a DUI. Yeah. What happens? Yeah. You get kicked out. Yep. But what are we doing to make sure you're okay as you're getting kicked out? Yeah. Jack and Yeah. You know, so True. what do so what do we do to set those guys up for success, you know? Yeah. I mean, they busted their the whole career and then they make a mistake. Yeah. And you got guys like me pulling them in telling them you're a piece you're better than that, but you know, you know how we do it. Yeah, yeah. And um, but at the end of the day, you know, in the back of your mind as a senior guy, you're like, he made, he just made a mistake, man. Yeah, could have been me. Yeah, yeah. and then you know, and you, 
and then you have to be the guy to tell him when his whole life was being a soldier yeah that because he had a lapse in judgment a lapse in discipline that it's all over yeah and then he gets out and then what does he do turns to drugs turns to alcohol yeah turns all that next thing you know that's one of the guys that offs himself yeah what do we do to help those guys also it's not just the ones that you know, are having issues from deployment, but it's yeah. also guys that have been deployed and everything else, and they got all that, and then they have a bad situation, and the next thing you know, they made one bad mistake, and they're done. Mm, that's a brilliant point, not yeah. one I've really thought about either. Yeah, I mean, people don't, you know, and and, and those guys, they, yeah, they, they made a mistake. Yeah. They stepped on a crank, mm-hmm. but they still served their country, and they served it honorably. Yeah, you know? and I would take it even one step further than that. You got a lot of guys that come into the army as troubled guys. Yeah, doesn't mean that because they're loyal and they're great soldiers. It doesn't mean that they're just going to become instantly great human beings. Yeah, they're like, not. They're not. Yeah. And and like the punishment is you know something that has to happen, but also to expecting them to be like morally and ethically yeah. upright at all times. Hey man, it ain't yeah. happening. Like I know, I saw it. You know, like yeah. That so like to not have a cushion there for them when they mess up is like it's crazy. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it got to the point to where it's like a zero defect. Yeah. But you're supposed to make mistakes back here so you don't make them in combat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, Definitely. I mean, and if you do make a mistake, you have a lapse in judgment, okay, you pay the consequences, yeah. but then it's over. Yeah. You know, I mean. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I think of that story of, um, you know, Adam Brown in, in Fearless. I don't know if you ever read that book. But I think he had, like, you know, he had racked up, like, 25 possible felony charges. And the judge, you know, on drugs, on hard drugs yeah. and, like, sales and all that. And the judge was kind of like, if you join this Christian outreach group, we'll let you go and we'll erase all this. Yeah. And, like, but he gave him a chance to redeem himself. Yeah. And what happened, Adam Brown probably became one of the, arguably one of the best SEALs of our generation. Yeah. You know, like, that's, that's you know, that, that kind of cushion enabled him yeah. to still be great. But at the same time, he knew... He knew that that was his one shot. Of course, yeah. Just Absolutely. like if you're that guy that got a DUI and mm-hmm. I can't pull you in, and I'm like, that's that's it. Yeah, that was your gimme. Now this is what's happening. You're not going to be a sergeant first class anymore. Yeah, you yeah. know, you may make sergeant first class again, but it's going to take you a long time. Right. But you still have the opportunity to redeem yourself and do your job and stay in the military. Yeah, yeah. You know, so but it's not even the fact that you know you get kicked out. It's the fact that. We put these guys through all these situations, but we have no way to make sure that they're squared away for the outside world. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, we do our little transition stuff, but it doesn't really do much for you, you yeah. know? It's not enough. Yeah. No. So what I tell you is, and I'm I'm still trying to get good at it, and I'm terrible at it, <laughs> but I know what really helps, man, and I, I've actually, it's actually worked for me a couple times, is we always tell guys, you know, if you're having issues, man, reach out. Yeah. But if you're not having issues, reach out. Yeah. You know, if you're doing good, man, just reach out to some of your buddies you haven't talked to in a long time because one of them, you never know because this happened to me, one of them will tell you, I'm not doing too good, man. Yeah. Because he'll finally have somebody contact him that he trusts. Oh, I guarantee if I went into my guys in my unit and Facebook messaged every one of them right now, there would be somebody in that group. Yes. Real jacked up right now. And he's waiting for that. Yeah. Because he's not going to hit you up. Nope. And he's going to look like everything's fine on Facebook, you know, mm-hmm. smiling with the family and all. But just like my buddy, you know, um, 
I hit him up, had him come do a, a Spartan race with me and stuff. And that weekend, he was like, man, I'm in a bad place, dude. Yeah. He's like, I don't know what it was, God or whatever, because I was literally about to do it, man. And then you called. But sometimes that's all it takes, yeah. you know? You saved his life in that moment, and you don't think of it that way, no. but you did. Yeah, you don't think of it that way. You're just reaching out to an old buddy. Yeah. You know, but I mean, it's it's... And the other thing, I know we got on the kind of morbid subject, but like... Well, it's important to yeah, talk it is. about these things. Me, when I was younger, man, I thought suicide was being a coward. Yeah. You know? I thought it was totally being a coward and everything else. And then after I've learned and grown and had so many guys that work for me and guys that have off themselves, what I know is these guys get lost and they they can't find their way back out. Yeah. And then it gets so painful that they make that one rash decision and it's too late. Yeah. You know? My best friend from my unit, one of the toughest, bravest guys I've ever known, served in the Marine Corps before the Army, and uh, just a hard, 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 hard guy, but he just, he could not shake that feeling that he lost himself after he took off the uniform. Yeah. He was a shell of himself when he got out of the military. I remember, like, thinking, what what happened to Sergeant Chick? Like, what what happened to him? Well, you know, know, man, I mean, they, guys get out and they think the grass is going to be greener. They go back home and... Yes, people, you know, family's there. People love them and everything, mm-hmm. but they still feel alone because yeah. they don't have you. Yeah. They don't have their platoon sergeant. They don't have somebody telling them what time to be where and what uniform to wear. And mm-hmm. they don't have the structure anymore and they don't have the support. And then they feel like, and this is just my experience from talking to a lot of my soldiers from over the years, is they feel like, yeah, their families, you know, want to know. Yeah. But for one, they don't want to tell them. And two, if they did, they'd have no clue what they're talking about. Right. You know? Very true. Yeah, so. So, you know, Mac, we've talked a lot about, obviously, you know, we've talked quite a bit about your time in combat and what it was like overseas for you. Uh, a long and illustrious career, uh, obviously capped off with the command being Command Sergeant Major um, and serving in that role. What? was reintegration like for you and getting out of the military well i tell you uh you know as with a lot of guys who you know their whole adult life is is service um you know you when you're getting ready to transition you go through a you know a lot of stuff goes through your head man and you're you're thinking you know i i'm tired right now this is going to be good for me you know like it's it's going to be a different change. It's going to be good, you know. So you try to figure out, yeah, I'm going to get out. What am I going to do next? What's going to be my new job? What's going to be my new career? And um, what I found with my transition, man, is I, I I retired and I immediately went to work, but I went to work. You know, I was working with a nonprofit. I went just straight um, nonstop work, a lot of travel, and uh, what I didn't do was I didn't actually, you know, take time to kind of take a step back and decompress and kind of just, you know, figure out how I'm going to actually, you know, for lack of a better term, um, ingest my new environment, you know, like like figure out, you know, how am I going to, how am I going to survive in this environment based off of what I've been before? And the reason I say that is because, you know, I was in a nonprofit, the Independence Fund, uh, they do a lot of great stuff. And, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of stuff for a lot of people and hanging out, you know, with some really great guys and a lot of my guys who they helped in the past. Uh, but what I didn't do was continue to ensure that I was where I needed to be to keep moving forward. Um, Mm. so like when I got ready to retire, 
you know, we kind of briefly hit on it before, but, um, you know, I was, I was having issues. I was angry and stuff, you know, because I, I thought it was all stress from retiring and, you know, changing, changing my life. You know, it's a different lifestyle. Everything's going to be different. But what I do did want to do is I didn't want to be, I don't know, you know, it might make sense to some people. It might not, but I did not want to be your typical retired senior enlisted guy that walks around still having a high and tight and still, you know, wearing his rank on his sleeve and, and not being that guy that kids could come talk to, you know, like I did not want to be the guy working at CIF saying I'm a, I'm a command sergeant major, you know, <laughs> cause what does that even matter Yeah, right. in the grand scheme of things? You know, what I wanted is I wanted to figure out, I wanted to figure out a way that I could just feel happy inside you know, um, because what I learned, um, and I, you know, I talked briefly, you know, my best friend in the world, um, Santos Cavazos and my wife, you know, they had that little intervention before I retired and told me I needed to talk to somebody, um, which I did. But what I learned, man, is you gotta, you, you gotta continue, you gotta push forward and you gotta fix yourself. I found that even, you know, I was doing this great thing with this nonprofit and all, but I just was not happy inside. I could put on a happy face all day long, but I was not happy, you know? Yeah. Um, um, and, and it wasn't anybody's fault. It wasn't the job. It wasn't anything. It was the fact that I didn't know how to be happy. Right. You know? And I look back on it, and at first I blamed it for moving in the civilian sector and being, you know, being a civilian now and not having, you know, the hard chargers to yell at all the time and do all that stuff. But when I look back on it, man, I hadn't been happy for years because I didn't know how to be. And a lot of that was because I kind of, I felt like I didn't deserve to be happy Mm. because, you know, as an old man in the profession I was in and everything I've seen, you know, I was still alive. I still have all my body parts and there's a lot of kids that aren't, Yeah, you know, and and, and that last deployment and one of those, you know, that second to last appointment you went through was incredibly difficult. Yes. You lost a lot of guys. Yeah. So that uh, had to weigh on your mind. Yeah, it was it was really rough, man. And um and you know, you don't you don't realize how you rationalize things and you don't you don't really realize what you're doing to yourself inside until you actually take a step out and look at yourself. Uh, you know. And a lot of us guys, we don't know how to do that because we're so focused on looking at everybody else and making sure they're squared away. Right. Yeah, is that difficult as a, you know, you were obviously in a super high rank as command sergeant major in the 82nd Airborne. Um, You know, in that rank at the battalion level, you know, do you, you, is it easy to lose sight of your own issues, of of your own things going on in your life? Yeah, very, very easy, man. Um, It's, uh, you got the mission, you got your soldiers, you got your paratroopers, you know, and you... You have that, and you use that as an excuse is, I don't have time, you know. Mm, yeah. I don't have time to fix myself. I got to get out here, you know, so lock that lock that back up and don't think about it. You right. Know? But I will tell, you know, some people listening and hoping, hopefully they listen to an old guy, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm, a, I'm old for the Army, but I'm not old in the civilian <laughs> world. Exactly. You got to take that step back, man, and look inside your soul and find that find that empty place. And you got to figure out how you can start filling it. And for me, I thought it would be just getting out, working around wounded guys and everything, which was good. But at the same time, I wasn't I wasn't happy with myself, so I wasn't giving them as much as I think I could have. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
got to fix your own issues yeah. before you start fixing somebody else's. Yeah, so I had to, you know, I had to take, look at myself, take a step back, and then figure out, you know, I need to decompress. I need to look at myself. I need to, I need to fix, you know, what's going on, and I need to uh, find a find a place and find a way to be happy. And 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 by that I mean, you know, obviously I love my family very much. You know, I love my friends, my brothers, sisters, everything. But there's still a part of you because of all the bad stuff that you go through and you've seen. You just you learn to make yourself not happy inside, right. you know, at the soul. And and it, a lot of it is because of the guilt that we all deal with because we're taught, you know, we're still here. So obviously somebody did something jacked up because somebody else got messed up, you know. And then um, you figure out a way without even knowing that you're doing it to blame yourself and then while you're doing that you're just you're just putting pain inside of you because you want to feel pain mm. and you're almost you feel guilty if you did feel happy mm. you know and i can tell you from my experience that's you know that's the real deal man and um people ask me you know what do you want to do you know what's your what's your goals and i'll tell you i got one goal man just be a happy old guy <laughs> you know um sounds like a pretty good goal yeah you know yeah. like i i equate it to people always ask me what do you mean i'm like i don't want to be clint eastwood and grand torino <laughs> you know i mean seriously i could somehow picture you oh i know role. i i could do that but i want to you know yeah, yeah, yeah. and if there's young guys listening they're still in the military and all you know us old sergeants majors and you know when we were first sergeants and you know we we were a-holes mm -hmm. but uh you know that's that's part of the job. That's part of the gig. You know, right. you got to be that guy. And that is tiring, man. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's very tiring. And a lot of, a lot of guys, they think we just love that. Yeah. Which sometimes is fun. Don't get me wrong. But, <laughs> but, uh, we'll preface that with saying, yeah. yes, it can be fun sometimes. I'll tell you, man, you know, and, and I, and I realize, you know, for myself being a senior guy transitioning and, and, you know, finding, finding myself having issues, I could imagine what it's like to be that kid that has three years in and, you know, one of those years is in deployment. Then, like we said earlier, you know, the next thing you know, he's at home mm -hmm. and he may not be alone, but he is alone. He's alone in his soul. Yeah. 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 And, you know, Mac, I think having a great network is also part yeah. of that. You know, you were very fortunate to come home to a very supportive wife and, yeah. you know, lovely daughters and, you know, have that, um, you know, that support network. But at the same time, you're making the very real point that that's not all, though. You know, you could no. be in a situation, you know, like I said, my best friend had a wonderful wife yeah. and two kids, man, and he still took his own life, you know. So that's not the end all be all, of course. No. And so, so where did that fix come from? You know, I mean, I'm sure there's still a struggle nowadays at times, but what, what, where do you feel your peace from? Where does your peace descend from? Well, I can tell you, uh, a lot of my peace, man. And, um, and some of you out there will relate to this is for the longest time, I couldn't face some of my troops that were wounded. You know, mm -hmm. I talked to them on Facebook and stuff like that, but I felt so guilty that I couldn't face them face to face. Yeah, because at the end of the day, I was their boss and I was responsible. And you know that being an eighty second airborne, such an illustrious unit, you know, serving yeah. in the command over paratroopers in one of the most violent parts of Afghanistan, if not the most violent, and losing guys, you know, being down to what nineteen per platoon, you yeah. know, at one point in time, you know that that's part of your service at eighty second airborne. But 
the actual facing the reality of that is completely different, right? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, you think you're ready for it, you think you understand it, and then um, you deal with it. You know, like me, I, I've always considered myself a tough guy, but I, you know, I was so scared to face those guys because I, like I said, bad things are going to happen in combat. No matter how squared away you are, you're going to, you know, you're going to have bad stuff happen you rationalize it by we should have done this or we should have did that and you know and all of those guys every single one of them missing limbs and you know killed and everything is that's on me man you know there's the way I felt and I didn't know how to face them you know and uh what was really hard was um facing a couple of the of the families of my guys who were who were killed and I'll tell you what really helped me was one of my my soldiers he was a great paratrooper and a just a tough kid um, Joe Karen, his dad, I, I went up to Washington state and his dad, you know, he called me and I, there was no way I could tell him no to go see Joe's grave. And he brought, he brought a uh, Joe's little sister with him. And what Jeff, wow. did, yeah. And what Jeff did that day, cause he was a former uh, soldier himself, you know, 101st guy is he told me, he's like, and he told me, he's like, sorry, major. It's okay, man. He died doing what he loved. Only thing he cared about was being a paratrooper and being with you guys. And we all knew what could happen. He's like, don't blame yourself. Don't blame your soldiers. Just like he talked about his squad leader, you know, because his squad leader blames himself. It's not about blame. It's about remembering and continuing to stay close with the guys who are still here to remember the guys that aren't. And, uh, yeah, yeah. We got a question here. I put you on the live here. Oh, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> the Veterans Project Podcast, where the host always disappoints you by telling you later that you're live. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so, you know, Vegas Strong, Inc., who has been pulling the project for quite some time. I do remember our followers pretty well. Yeah. Um, got to do the inner work. Curious to see what worked for you in particular yeah well the uh the inner work for me man is uh i'll tell you uh for one you know you gotta find you gotta find that happy place um that place that kind of gives you i don't know like your daily recharge but it also helps you kind of look inside your yourself and realize that hey you know this is actually feeling it a little bit you know it's actually making me feel kind of happy yeah you know um yeah. And it's not about, you know, being cool or any of that stuff. Like for me, it's there's a couple things that just really have helped me out tremendously. And one, it's lifting weights. Yeah. You know, I go and uh, I throw in my death metal because I'm a huge metal head. And, uh, <laughs> I've learned and that over one, the past couple weeks. Yeah, yeah. Metal helps me as well. But, but what really helps, man, is having that meditation time. And by meditation time, I say, I think, you know, it's the only time of the day when I throw that music in that I don't think about anything else from the outside world. I just think about myself. Yeah. You know, and um, and I always lift weights. And then at the end of my workout, I'll go sit in the sauna for 30 minutes. And my because I'm old now, like I said, I don't run as much as I used to. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I sit there and what I do is I, I just kind of I think about things and I. I I just do a little soul searching and then I look at myself and I'm like, you know, who, you know, what am I going to do tomorrow? Uh, what can I do to, you know, to just be productive and make myself feel like that, you know, I have a reason for being here. Mm, um, yeah. And it's not, you know, we all have a reason for being here because of our families and everything, but 
for what we've done and, and what we've seen and our guys that aren't are still not here, man. We we owe it to ourselves to be here um, because they're not here, you know, and yeah. and they would want us to be here. So, you know, I just – you got to take something that just helps you recharge. Um, like for me, I throw tomahawks. I, uh, I lift weights and I listen to heavy metal music, and those are the times that it's just me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and like, you act. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> now I'm an actor. But, uh, but you know, yeah. but, but what I'm saying is, you know, it's – yeah, a lot of people work out and stuff, and that's great, and that's awesome. You know, do whatever you, you want to do, but – right. When I lift weights, when I work out, I work out by myself because it's my reflection time. You know, it's my time for me. Um, and anything you can do like that to kind of just figure out what fills the fills the hole in there, man. I mean, it might be playing video games. I don't care. <laughs> whatever it is. But something that makes you, you know, where you can just look at yourself. And then after I work out, I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, did I push myself hard enough? And then I feel like I'm about to die and I know I did. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. There but, you go. But yeah, um, that really helps me a lot. We had another question come in that was pretty All good. Right. He said, hey, CSM, do you have any books, podcasts, or other resources that keep you motivated nowadays? Yeah, well... Uh, <laughs> My uh, my my resources uh, that keep me motivated for real is, uh, and I'll tell you the truth, man. I I don't I don't listen to a lot of podcasts and stuff. You will be listening yeah. to this one. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is, I've been on quite a few. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's uh, at the end of the day, you know, you can get motivation from you know books and listening to people, but. My vote, my motivation truly stems from like, you know, getting out and being around the guys and talking to guys. And, mm. uh, and, you know, I've heard, I've had people tell me over the years, you should write a book. Well, I don't know how to write a book, but what I do know how to do is I know how to get out there and hang with the guys and do shit. And, um, you know, just, you know, w- what motivates me, man, is the drive to, you know, hopefully, I guess the way I kind of look at it is, uh, you know, a lot of people that know me know what I've been through. Mm-hmm. Um, people that don't don't really know what I've been through. But when I get messages on Facebook or Instagram and stuff like that, and they're like, hey, man, I was hurting real bad, but, you know, I saw your post and I, I went and got in the gym. You know, what motivates me is just knowing that there are dudes out there motivating themselves. Yeah. Um, I don't fanboy out on any of the podcasts or any of that stuff. You know, I never have. Uh, I've listened to some. I've been on some. And they're great. But at the end of the day, you know, you got to, you know, take what you can from them, but you got to motivate yourself, man. You got to figure out how to, how to, how to be disciplined and do what's right for you. Yeah. You know, that's good. Um, you know, obviously we're on set, uh, you know, or, or soon to be, um, you know, we've got, you know, you're, you're acting in this film that's coming out, you know, Stephen Graham, director, a uh, very talented guy, um, and Nate Boyer, producer, you know, one of my really good friends and a guy who brought, you know, who brought us all together. Um, and this idea of bringing veterans on set, you know, yeah. like bringing veterans into the arts and bringing veterans on set. We've been out here for the past couple of weeks making a pretty awesome movie. Um, what has been your experience so far being on this set? And has this been helpful for you and for, for your purpose, you know, for your sense of purpose? Yeah, man. I mean, uh, when Steven first hit me up uh, this past summer about this, you know, his first, he called me at like midnight and he's like, hey, man, I got this idea. He's like, you don't have to do it, but I think you are you would be perfect for it. And uh, so, yeah, I was like, I met Steven a few years back at a, at a veterans event. We were uh, 
we had a bunch of wounded guys out um, doing a hog hunt and uh, met him. And I was like, yeah, this dude's cool, you know. And then I recognized him from White Chicks. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, you know, we be- we became buddies and we've done a lot of stuff. You know, he's been to a lot of events, veteran events. He even went to uh, a big event we had with uh, Jose Mangan from uh, Liquid Metal out in uh, Seal Beach and uh, the rock band otherwise to help guys. But, um, but, yeah, when he hit me up, you know, I was like, dude, I'm I'm not an actor, man. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, yeah, but you got a presence, you know. And, yeah. um, but I, I, I looked at it and I was like, yeah, dude, you know, if you ask me to do something, I'm going to do it. And I was like, I was like, it's going to be a challenge. But the way I looked at it is that's one more piece to the, you know, to getting different experiences and kind of figuring out what I want to do as I grow up. Right. And I'll tell you, the experience I've had since I've been out here, yeah, we've been freezing our butts off. <laughs> we have. Fact. But... But, you know, I've been around some really great people. I've got to make some really good friends like you, Tim. You know, you're a brother for life now. You know that. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, I agree. But, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's such a cool experience and kind of seeing how this process works. Right. Um, it's not like what most of us think where somebody's just got a camera following you around. <laughs> Um, but isn't that crazy too like how how much oh my god (laughs) i mean you know i I obviously i went and got my bachelor's in digital media film so i've been on sets before but for those of people who step on a set you do not realize how much work uh you know there's always work there's always drama there's always stuff going on you know that just kind of blows your mind and these days are long days like yes you're a command sergeant major like you know what hard work is yes but this is th- you will verify, Don, that this is hard work, right? This is uh, really hard work. Yeah. Uh, a lot goes into it. A lot of a lot of people work their butts off. Um, a lot more than the actors do. Tell you the truth about it. Yeah. And uh, you know, it, but I'll tell you, man, it's uh, it's one more of those things where it's a challenge, but it's got me around really good people, and it's and it's another way. The way I kind of looked at it was it was another way for me to kind of. To be more, um, I guess, uh, out there in the open for more guys to approach me and talk to me and ask me questions and, and you know, and just, I mean, yeah. excuse my language, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I like, um, it's like, um, this, this thing here is, it, it's so amazing because it's been a total challenge for me and I thought it, I thought the acting part would be, you know, kind of difficult figuring that out, but it's the physicality especially of the stuff I've been doing, which we're not going to talk about too much right. of it. We don't yeah. want to give it away. Can't give it away. But, but it's the, uh, it's the, the hours, all the stuff, you know, we've been helping this, the crew out and everything and just seeing the process. It almost feels like when we're sitting at headquarters here that we're deployed, <laughs> Yeah. you know, Yeah. it almost does, but it's, uh, it's going to be a great thing. And, um, and I'm so honored that, uh, you know, Stephen and, and Nate, uh, you know, brought me onto this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and we had Rudy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and. How good was that camaraderie, by the way? You know, we're all oh, chilling out. We're all hanging out. Yeah. It was your first time meeting Rudy. Colorful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Mr. Rudy himself. You know, we had a colorful experience. Yeah. We get to spend all this time in the house together, um, on set together. We get to see all the different personalities. Yeah. But. At the end of the day, you know we're all kind of looking at yeah. each other like, yeah, we here, though. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. me, you, Nate, yeah. Rudy, we're like, yeah, yeah, we're really doing well, this. <laughs> yeah, we're really doing this, and uh, the civilians on set sometimes don't know how to take it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, uh, we have... <laughs> They're just like, wait, can we laugh at that? Yeah, 
They're like, those guys are pretty dark. Yeah. Their humor is crazy. But <laughs> yeah. y- y'all know veteran humor. But uh, mm-hmm. but yeah. yeah, man, this is a this is an amazing journey, and I'm super excited about it. And like I said, you know, I'm not I'm not looking to be in some big A list actor or anything. But what I figured this would help with is, you know, when it comes out, that's just one more piece to kind of get out there and let people see. Hey, man, yeah. you know, go do go do stuff, man. Do what yeah. makes you happy. And and we'll be for sure, you know, as, as the movie starts getting wrapped and everything, we start, you know, getting closer to actual production and getting pushed out. We'll be promoting that for sure uh, at the Veterans Project because we've gotten to be a part of this and we've gotten to see a lot of what Nate's trying to do with this, you know, idea with the, having a veteran production company and involving people um, who a lot of people don't otherwise think is artistic, but are incredibly artistic. Yeah. Uh, very hardworking. You know what's funny is on set, it's almost like in a way, like everybody pictures this very like uh, artsy, you know, like yeah. background. But dude, this is one of the most industrious like professions you can be in. Yeah. Like, besides actually being on camera, like the behind the camera stuff is so industrious. I yes, mean, it is. You have to know how to build. You have to know how to work sets, especially when your budget isn't quite what you yeah. want it to be. Like there is so much that goes into production on the set. I mean, dude, we've been well, seeing guys that are what 20 years yeah. old 25 well, years old that are geniuses that are just figuring things out every second well it's kind of like being an infantryman you're a jack of all trades but master of none yet uh, you yeah know? very true you know and that and and in this business the only way i see that you would c- become a master of that trade is with the experience just like in, inf- in the infantry you know yeah i mean that's so important and i think in the in the art space you know one thing that i've noticed with um, you know, Nate, knowing him over the past few years and everything is like, it's always, it, you're, you're never completely there. You're never completely satisfied. No. You're always working for that next project. Like, so, you know, there will be the accomplishment of this. We wrap that, but then there's a the production part. There's actually figuring out how to distribute the yep. movie, get it out there to the world. Um, but, you know, this has been, I will say, you know, from my own side, because I do want to speak from my own side, too, that this has been an incredible experience. It's been mind-blowing. I've gotten a lot of, um, you know, constructive, I've just had a lot of constructive education in how this all goes down and understanding of watching veterans on set and how well we can do on set as well. And all those things that Nate had described to me in the past about, even on the podcast, about how you know, timeliness yeah. and attention to detail, like all those things are so important. And I'm seeing more and more how veterans can be very productive yeah. on these sets. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and veterans, you know, from all walks, you know, we have that make it happen mentality, you know? Yeah. You know, gripe and complain about it once it's done. But, yeah. w- but when it's go time, it's go time. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, this experience as a whole has been incredibly productive of course um your scenes uh have been amazing and for those of you that you know don't know what we're talking about kind of in the dark you know you will come to understand what we're talking about but mac has been excellent i mean this is his first real acting gig and i'm just i'm not saying this to say this because i've seen some really good actors perform at very high levels mac has done an incredible job in a very physical environment at doing things that a lot of people would not be comfortable with 
And I think that goes back to your time as being a command sergeant major, you know, being in how many incredibly uncomfortable positions have you been in throughout your army career? Oh, my God. You know, more often than not. Right. Yeah. That's it's countless, countless, countless. Um, You know, I mean, it even comes down to the things like asking, though, right? Like people like, are you sure you're comfortable doing this? And you're like, are you kidding? Yeah. Like I'm like, I'm like, really? Yeah, no, nah, this is too easy, man. <laughs> you know, like, come on. You, you know, want me to be a little cold yeah. for a little while? I yeah. got this. Yeah, I can suck it up, man. I'll be all right. I'm going to a heater later. Yeah, yeah. I'm good. <laughs> we didn't get the heaters yeah. back when we were in. <laughs> no, I'm like, I'm like, uh, I get to go sleep in a bed tonight. Yeah, what, what do you need me to do? <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're good. Yeah, we're good, dude. Yeah, and it, it, that stuff really does uh, come to light here on set, man. It's very important that we have that attitude. Yeah. How you know after seeing this, what do you think veterans bring to the table? That is that is so important. I know we've discussed well, it a little bit, but well, what do you think? I think what could really help, you know, seeing kind of seeing what's going on with, you know, this production. Obviously, I'm not experienced in movie making or anything, but I am experienced with managing people. Right. And what veterans could really, really bring to a project like this is uh, the structure is there, but it's it's enforcing the structure, reinforcing the structure, making sure that you know, that all these gates are kept and that everybody's where they need to be at the right time, at the right place. And that if you're a veteran and you're given a job, then you're going to ensure that that job's done 100% to the best of your ability and you're not going to gripe and complain about it. Like I said, when it's all over, you might. Yeah. But when it's go time, you're not. Right. Because you got to make it happen. Yeah. But the other the other piece to that is, is you bring a, uh, you know, veterans would especially if you get a group of veterans together, even coming from all different services and everything, the work ethic is, you know, there's no time to not do it. You know, we got to get it done. We have a timeline, you know, we, we know it, we know it's got to be done. So let's just get it done, man. And, uh, and I'm not saying that, you know, the civilians and everything that work on these sets aren't the same way, but the, 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 the difference is, is the sense of urgency, right? You know, yeah. Because for us, we're taught that time time is life and death, man. So yeah. you got to make it freaking happen. Oh, so you don't get it done. You don't you don't walk going anywhere. No, no, you army. make it happen. Yeah. you know. So yeah, um, you know, it's about a sense of urgency, but it's also bringing bringing a little more a little more structure and a little more uh, motivation. I think you know. Yeah. I you know I, I I think we've seen that a lot here, Mac, and you know, and in, in industrious, hardworking behaviors. You know, how many times have you and I pointed at each other and go, ah, "I do that." Yeah, or, ah, yeah. I think we could do that. Yeah, this would be easier if you you know yeah. you did it this yeah. way. Yeah, but and you that's know. not a knock on anybody no. on set. It's just little things that can be improved throughout. I mean, this thing has been incredible. Yeah, a lot of hardworking characters. Um, you know, act on you know on camera and off camera, but it is those little intangibles, yeah. right? Where you're like, you know, all right, I know what this takes. Yeah, like I could see well, what it takes. Well, it's the simple thing of you know you're out there you're looking and you know it's got to be done within the next thirty minutes, but nobody's doing it. Yeah, <laughs> you know exactly. And uh, and you know, and I will say, you know, there's some people out there. Well, that's easy to say. Yeah, it's always easy on the outside looking in. You know, it's easier when you're out there being the armchair quarterback. But mm-hmm. the difference is, is, you know, when we, we're sitting there, we're not speaking from, you know, not knowing. We're looking at the situation and we're like, 
this could be so much more efficient. Yeah. You know? And it's and it's an obvious fix. Yeah, like, obvious. It's an obvious fix. It, you know, could be placated. And also, um, you know, like the whole, you know, the whole worrying about people's feelings and stuff. Yeah. Like, that doesn't exist. In the, like, I think if I had a production set, and this is, you know, no knock on anybody directing or producing out there, but I think I would have a waiver that signs, like, a hurt feelings clause. Like, yeah. during this production of this, I will say things that may drive you insane, but you're going to do it, or you'll simply be gone. Like, Well, the, the other piece to it, man, is like, uh, you know, we're used to being direct. Very. So if it's like... If I'm if if I'm there and I need this done, I'm saying go do it now. I don't have time to discuss it. Yeah, you know? yeah. And you're not gonna get butt hurt by me saying that. Mm-hmm. You're just gonna go do it, and you're probably in the back of your mind, man, man, that dude's such an a hole. <laughs> but you know, you're gonna <laughs> yeah. do it. You're still gonna do because it because that's your work ethic. Because yeah. that's who you are. Yeah. And you're not gonna let it affect you. But you know, in a world where, you know, for lack of a better term, there are a lot of there are not a lot of meat eaters out there. Mm-hmm. You know, people, uh, they want to get things done and they want to do it, but they don't, they either, they don't know how to be direct or they can't take someone being direct with them. Yes. You know, like if I'm too direct with someone and then like you said, all of a sudden they think that I just, I hate them or I'm really mad at them and all this stuff. And it's not, not at all. It's like, this needs to get done. Do it now. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it anymore. You know, it's like, that's not anger. Like I told people and then. And then we talked about it too, you know. What happens when you're, you know, and you're you're on like a set like this, and something happens, and somebody has to raise their voice to get something done? Yeah, they're not mad at you; they're mad at the situation. They want to oh. fix the situation. Yes, and people can't get past that. They think it's personal, and it's not. Yeah, it's just business, man. No, I mean that's something that uh, you know. I think I was like mistook my footing or something on the set one day. It's like. The you know is the photographer and then yeah. shoot behind the scenes photos and I think I stepped out a little too far on like one of the edges or something and I think I made some like footprints where I shouldn't have yeah and like the you know DP Logan was like hey bro like hey dude don't step over there come on man and like pulls me back dude I wasn't offended in the least no. bro I was like oh cool like I was an idiot right there so yeah. I probably need to not step over there like, yeah and Logan was just doing his job no, and, and trying then, to make and it happen. Five minutes later, Logan and I are like, you know, like smoking and joking, you yeah. know, like because it's, it's not you; it's the situation. It's the situation. He's trying to get the best possible yep. shot he can. He's concerned about the overall scene. He doesn't have time for idiots stepping nope. into frame. Like, you know, he's exactly. got to make sure that everything is properly cut. But you might say that to somebody, and they carry that grudge for like three hours or four, or yeah. the rest of the day, yeah. or the rest of the shoot. Like, you just cannot. No, it's it, and, it, and stuff has to get done with a sense of urgency. I think those are the best run crews and the majority of that what we've seen so you know from this crew has been good you know yeah. it's been people taking instruction okay you know steven yells something out as director like yeah it's gonna get done all right it's all good happened in the moment i have to handle it now and guess what after that we can all yeah. hang out and be cool and it's all good yeah it's not personal man it's business um but I, yeah absolutely um you know we've had a great podcast here Don and uh, you know I'm very appreciative of you coming on you know the perspective of command sergeant major uh, now involved in the arts and you know owning your own you know clothing store now and getting to do stuff there Um, you know with Rogue American out in you know at Bragg Um, 
is there anything that you want to speak to particularly and you know and and you know were there any was there anything that you wanted to talk about specifically to to kind of close things out and yeah i mean uh you know like uh we've talked about you know the veteran suicide issue but you know more importantly than that man like i said uh you know, we all get out, and when we get out of the military, you got to make a living, you know, you got to, you got to pay your bills, you got to do everything, man, but from a, from a dude who's seen a lot of, if you're not happy doing what you're doing, man, do it until you can find something that does make you happy, mm-hmm. you know, and then the other thing, man, is, is don't ever forget where you came from. You could be the CEO of whatever company, you could be the A-list actor or whatever, but never forget where you came from, you know, never forget your roots and don't forget your buddies. And then, man, you know, like, take take a step back, regardless if you're a veteran, civilian, first responder, whatever. Everybody has issues, man. Just take a step back and look at yourself, man, and just get out there and do some do some high-speed stuff and, you know, make yourself feel good. And be yourself, be who you are, and don't give a what anybody else thinks. Focus on you. Focus on what's right. And just be yourself, man. We're too we're too worried about what everybody else is doing and all that. Mm-hmm. Focus on you, man. Because if you focus on you, everything else is going to fall into place. And then I'll, I'll give another quick plug to um, the Independence Fund and uh, the uh, VA have put together a program called Operation Resiliency. They are, they are looking for units that have been in real hard combat fights, man, to conduct these uh, really amazing. Um, reunions and all you need to do is if you're command of one of those units company size battalion size if you're the command first arm command sergeant major battalion commander company commander reach out to the independence fund and tell them hey can i get some information on this Mm. they did that with my guys from the argandab back in april and uh i can tell you since then guys have been keeping in contact there was so much closure from a deployment 10 years ago that um, it's an amazing opportunity for for guys out there. So I'm just throwing it out there because it is a program of record for the VA now. Yeah. And uh, the way the Independence Fund is running it is really good. And, you know, all nonprofits are doing, like, really good stuff. And I, I'm just saying this for that one because I've, I've seen it personally. Right. Um, and it's it, it's all expenses paid for, for your unit, and they're looking for units to go, but you have to reach out to them because they don't know who you are. Right. But, yeah, that and, you know— don't be scared to get to step out of your uh, your comfort bubble, man. You know, be 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 happy, be a bad. You know, get out there and do do epic stuff every day. And and the last thing I'd like to say, and this is probably going to hurt some feelings, but <laughs> a but, command sergeant major yeah. hurting feelings. Well, what? <laughs> I'm not talking like I used to. I don't have the sergeant major voice on. But uh, I tell you this, man. Just because you joined the freaking military doesn't mean anybody owes you a thing. Mm, um, well a, said. And a lot of these, a lot of a lot of you out there, you you see all these organizations like the Independence Fund and all these nonprofits and everything that are doing great stuff for veterans. You kind of get you get to where, hey, what am I going to get when I get out? Who's going to do this for me? You know, like just remember, man, nobody owes you a thing. You signed up, you decided to do it. If somebody wants to square you away or tell you thank you for your service, be very appreciative of it. But but remember, at the end of the day. The only person that owes you anything is you. Mm. And I will say one more thing about that. You do owe somebody something, and that's all your buddies that didn't make it back in one piece or didn't make it back at all. Mm-hmm. And you owe it to them to uh, stay alive, man. Yeah. You know, don't be that guy. 
Yeah. Uh, so, so just from a guy who's seen a lot of, don't feel like everybody owes you something. If you get out there and work, man, you, great things are going to happen to you, and you can get through anything. You just gotta, you got, you gotta be willing to do it yourself, though. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Mac, you know, I just got to say that, you know, it's it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you said earlier, you know, brothers uh, for life after this, but that's the truth, man. Um, you know, I found another uh, I found another selfless server, a guy who gets out there and gets after it um and who comes into a role that he was otherwise uncomfortable with didn't know and stepped in and did a great job with it and that was pretty cool to see and mostly i respect your perspective uh because you know i never dreamed in my life that i would be having these deep you know incredibly philosophical conversations with command sergeant majors and guys at such a level that did it at such a such a high level when i myself you know was a one, you know, uh, you know, just a guy who did one deployment and served my six years and got out, you know. And so getting to spend this time with guys that I looked up to, um, you know, I was definitely afraid of you. But yeah. <laughs> as a command sergeant major, yeah. you guys scared me badly. But, you know, to, to get to hear your perspective of combat and reintegration and the arts and your comfort in developing these different levels of self – I think it's so much more impressive than what a guy like me does because I'm so used to civilian life. You know, I've done it for so long. That it's like stepping into these roles is like pretty easy because I've been around it so often. For you going off, you know, as a command sergeant major doing that for 20 plus years and serving and then retiring and then stepping into whole new realms is so complex, man. So I just want to say I respect the heck out of you for doing that. And uh, I respect your journey and your path and where you're going now. So thank you. Well, for me, thank you, man, because uh, all of you guys, man, old dudes like me wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys. So I'm honored to know you, man, and I'm honored to know any of you out there. And, uh, you know, if you're out there, hit me up on the socials, man. Even if you don't know me, I'll talk to you. Um, <laughs> I, you know, and where are you I, at on Instagram again? Uh, it's just Donald underscore Mac underscore McAllister. OK, awesome. You heard yeah, him. Hit him up. Yeah. Hit me up, man. Um, I'm. You know, I love talking to guys. I love getting out and doing stuff. Uh, every year I do a few Spartan races with guys and stuff like that. I bring wounded guys in. Um, so what keeps me alive is stuff like this, being around guys like you, Tim. Um, mm. I mean, like I said, I love my family more than anything. They've always been there for me. But they know that, you know, regardless of how old I get or what I do in the rest of my life, that I have to be around guys like you. Right. And I'm just, I'm honored that I got to meet you out here, man, and I'm around you guys, and I'm honored they brought me onto this, and I'm just, I'm always honored and humbled to be around troops, man, because troops are why guys like me make it to where we make it to. If you guys don't do your jobs, then what are, where are we going to be? You Absolutely. Know? So I really appreciate, you know, everything you're doing with this, because this Veterans Project is, is super important, because you're, you're keeping that history alive man you're you're telling stories that some people may not ever hear yeah and uh and that's that's super important and i thank you for that i applaud you for that and i thank you for everything you're doing man well thank you man i appreciate that uh you know gotta gotta educate the karens of the world out there yeah 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 karen karen needs some help <laughs> and for those of you who don't understand that'll be our little inside nugget. Yeah. so yeah 
our little what do what do they call it on set where they it's like the Easter oh, egg yeah the Easter yeah, egg the Easter yeah. egg that'll be our Easter egg yeah yeah well Mac thanks for coming on um you guys know where to find him Instagram you've got a shop right Rogue American yeah. out of Bragg. Rogue American Fort Bragg yeah awesome all right well we appreciate you coming on Mac again thank you for your service thank you for your uh, service to the civilian society now. And uh, we appreciate you, man. And don't forget, all of you listening out there, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. And most of all, our legacies are the mission. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at project underscore veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.